0: Cole Shack's Loop Podcast, special interview with Forrest
1: Burgess. Hey, this is Richard Haddam, reminding you that if you want your boss, Tony Vincenzo, to believe your stories of the supernatural, you've either got to get better pictures or maybe bring
2: them along on one of your cases. That'd be cool. And you're listening to the Cole Shack's Loop Podcast. After my enlightening conversation with the beautiful Helen Surtees, I ran a check through tax records and business licenses. The Max Match Dating Service was almost brand spanking new. No one knew where it came from or what other branches it had. It seemed to me that such mysterious origins warranted what we in the press call the Midnight Interview.
0: Hello and welcome to the Col Shack Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things Kohl's Shack. And as you're about to hear everything in between, I'm one of your co-hosts, Bradley. We jumped right in the conversation, and we didn't slow down until the end, Uh, so I thought I'd just give you a little bit of of background about uh, Forrest Burgess and what he does. He podcast with and has been podcasting with the uh, Astonishing Legends since 2014, Uh, and I, I discovered them probably the year after. Uh, they started in October of 2014. I think I discovered them. Uh, then a few, maybe six or so episodes in, and I haven't stopped listening to them since. You know, they're, they're probably one of the uh, podcasts that really turned me on to to wanting to learn the medium. And uh, it was just a fascinating process that they have. And I'm really glad I got to meet them at Podcast Movement, talk to them, had lunch with them. Uh, but they've got a really great team. Scott Fieldbrook and uh, Forrest Burgess are the hosts. Um, but they really have a great team around them. Tess Feifel is one of their, I think she's their head of research. They call them the ARC, the Astonishing Research Corps. Uh, she's the head there. They got a great editor, Sarah voorhees Wendell. Got to meet her as well. And their sound designer, Ryan McCullough, He, I mean, it's just a, a an amalgamation. Just such a a great uh, a great team they have over there. I definitely recommend going over there and checking them out. Uh, but they are definitely one of the one of the most successful. Uh, paranormal podcast going today you know they i think they have over 80 million downloads uh and that number is probably even low uh now but i just wanted to give you a little back a bit of background on them they've done a lot of great episodes i could list all day the, the amazing episodes just you know the nazi bell or um a, bit, a bunch of bigfoot a bunch of great alien episodes the Cura object and the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter in Tennessee, something, you know, some, a lot of off the beaten path stuff. And even like the Pied Piper and, uh, uh what are some other historical ones? The count of St. Germain. It's just so much that they've covered so much, so much ground. And it's not like your standard paranormal podcast. They put a lot of research into it. And if you listen to astonishing legends, you're going to go down some rabbit holes and you're going to go down some, uh, some four parters, five parters that are uh, 12 hours sometimes. But you know, that being said, it was a really fun interview. I'm so glad I got to meet these guys and uh, meet them at Podcast Movement. Got to talk to him here. And we definitely plan on having uh, Scott back on with Forrest in the future, having both back on uh, as much as we can in the future, you know, because it's a really fun conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to end my talking, and I will get on with the interview. So here is Forrest Burgess from Astonishing Legends. We're here, you know. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. We we got into the heavy side quickly. Um, we, we I've already been talking to Forrest about uh, his background. He went to film school, went to Washington, went to USC. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that. So um, let's get into talking mm-hmm. about films in general. What what are some films that you enjoy, or some films that you think, wow, this is really well made? Anything like
1: that? Ah, geez. Well, the latest ones. Uh, one of yours. One of your noted ones on our shared document was, of course, The Shining, if we're going to talk about uh, scary paranormal films and, uh, you know, uh, Love Kubrick films, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I've seen most every one of his films over the years, and... Uh, but I really like the the newer one, Dr. Sleep, that came out. I did, too. I love
2: Dr. Sleep. Did you? Sleep. Yeah. Really... Bradley's going to yes. love that you said that.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love the book. Yeah.
0: And Rodney Barnes is a huge Stephen King guy. And ah. I told him, I, thought, I said, man, I think Dr. Sleep was a better book than The Shining was. And he said, that's Harry. <laughs> I was like, I was like yeah. man, I, I love Dr. Sleep. Loved the, what they did with the movie because the movie's so different than the book. But yeah. Stephen King really helped ride it and sort of based it off of Kubrick's work. That was pretty cool of him to do, you know. I know he hated the film originally.
1: Yeah, he uh, he but, you know, it is one of those things where it's a, it's a different um you know, it's a different cat. It of course everybody who reads the book and and loves it no matter what it is, they see the movie and they want it to be just as good as the book. Uh yeah. in in the same way. Of course we all know if you think about it, it's, it can't be exactly the same. You're taking a what, four or five hundred page novel, and then you're (laughs) going to boil that down into cohesive narrative structure. And it's visual. Film is a visual medium. It's not writing. When you read something, that all plays out in the theater of your imagination, your mind's eye, and how how Mm -hmm. the characters look, and how you think that they're going to sound. And then when you see it in film, it you know, often that's shattered, or it's just, it's just different. It's not going to be exactly what you pictured, and it may not be as good. It may not be as good of a film on its own as the book was on its own as a as a book or novel, so uh, there's a lot to bridge, but uh, w- something that was interesting for us when we, we just did the story on The Conjuring House, so uh, that movie is yeah. pretty good. I, I like that series, uh, you know, the whole Conjuring universe for the most part. It's very, it's very entertaining, and Uh, You know, all the films are varying, I think, entertainment value and, and, uh, you know, what I liked about them. But the first one uh, I thought was a good start to the franchise. And then the last one, the latest one, um, you know, The Devil Made Me Do It, Uh, (laughs) you know, basically the same characters as uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. And I thought that was well done because uh, it turned out to be, to me, it was more of an investigation as well. So there's a lot more going on rather than just like uh, there's a phenomenon happening we try to find out what that is, and then we end up battling it at this last location. Which, you know, that's the structure of a lot of them—is that there has to be a big battle. But in this case, uh, I thought there was a, a more interesting puzzle pieces and clues and things to follow as it as it laid out. But my point about bringing that up is that, uh, you know, the very first one we were we were talking about this uh, uh, on the on the podcast and as well as in the uh, the Facebook group a little bit uh, that discusses. Uh, each of our topics is that Andrea Perone, the eldest daughter at the time, she wrote a memoir years after, possibly almost around 30 years later, uh, from notes that she she had made in her remembrances and the mother's notes. Uh, her her mother had made a lot of uh, notations down when things were happening, so she used that plus the the family's recollection and uh you know a lot of people will say like well it's just it's just too hard to follow things are repeated the dates don't line up this and that or that that person actually didn't die in the house whatever it was uh it, so it's more stream of consciousness that our books are and so there's three volumes the first two are 500 pages each the second one is about 400 pages so it's voluminous it's vol- voluminous there's a lot of pages so you you think you know oh she's probably not going to like that movie uh but I was listening to you know, part of my research that I did on it was I listened to a interview with her and Jim Harold years ago uh about yeah. when the movie came out. And she loved the film. She was just really glowing about it, just saying like, look, I it's a different thing. You can't expect yeah you know, our experience and and, and certainly my whole uh you know, nine hundred pages of uh or actually uh 1,400 pages of recollections to fit inside of one movie, but she said what they nailed in this, and what I love about it, is that the message was on point, and that love conquers all, the love of family, us gathering together uh, to fight this thing, uh, whatever it was, that is the message that I liked. She said it was well cast, it was, it was well done, so yeah, she really loved the movie, where you thought, like, I don't think she's going to like, you know, any movie about somebody's personal life, or Experiences, especially when it's that traumatic, uh, you think you know it's gonna be it's it's gonna be given the quote unquote Hollywood treatment where things are jumbled around and and so it's interesting and and, and you all had uh, Rich Hanneman not too long ago, right? Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and, and I'm sure you guys talked about him, his process and thinking and philosophy of taking uh, such a st- strange book as John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies and making a film out of it. And also making it its own film, and that it's not going to follow the book exactly. I'm not sure how you could make a, a, a decent movie out of that. So he made it its own thing, but also respecting Keel and the book and the things that happened. Uh, so that that's the that, yeah. that is the the chore of the of the writer of the screenwriter of anybody who tackles that kind of thing and story adaptation.
2: Yeah, I understood that he had done that, and when I um, and he'd kind of asked us if we felt. Cheated by mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. or something like that, and then I then I flashed him the script that I had of. <laughs> it's like no, I didn't really feel cheated at all. Yeah, that, that, that was fine. That's nice. And and I remember it was the um the, the movie that Mark Wahlberg made that was about the Boston Marathon bombing, and that was one where I didn't know enough going in, mm-hmm. and his character was involved in every single scene of violence and tracking people down mm-hmm. and i mean it was basically his guy was there for everything right and i thought this is amazing this guy was there for every single scene i mean every like i can't believe this yeah and then later i'm looking on my phone looking it up and it's like inspired by and this character <laughs> is an amalgamation of all police officers and i was like ah, oh. yeah but but i got it right you know right and that honestly i told rich that helped me um, take the Mothman as it was. Yeah, uh, the way that he wrote it, it's like I, I get it. I understand this yeah. is all that you can really do. And and really the 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 follow up question I had a little bit to Stephen King. I'm going to backtrack just the one thing mm-hmm. is um as an English former English teacher mm-hmm. and also someone someone who loves linguistics. I only have one thing to say about Rodney. Uh, I keep calling you Rodney. I'm sorry, Bradley. <laughs> I've just got Rodney Barnes on my mind. That was latest, yeah, the latest one. I have literally listened to our interview with him like it's my catcher in the rye. I mean, it's been nearly 20 times. I'm going nuts with this. Just don't stop, call me. Was it Stephen Caulfield or whatever that guy's? is? Just,
1: oh, Holden, oh Holden Caulfield. Holden, yeah. There yeah. You go. yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness gracious.
2: <laughs> right. No, but it was, uh, Bradley, your pronunciation of BP. Now, see, I would know you were from Kentucky if you would have said bay pay. So oh. <laughs> it's more the, the real thick Kentucky I, accent. It's going to yeah. be the bay pay, right? And you're the BP. <laughs> so I, I just, I don't, it's, I just love that. Yeah, no, we love. Uh,
1: I, yeah, we, we. Uh, just a little sidetrack. We, we, you know, Scott and I love language, uh, linguistics, yes. uh, accents. Uh, he's very proud in that, uh, you know, North Carolina. Uh, I'm not sure he can he claims this, but his wife, who's a comedy writer, Emily Spivey, uh she can she can claim she will know what region or county almost you're from by your accent. And it's all very slight. But yeah, it differs some. And then one thing Scott said that was interesting is that there's one uh area of north carolina where the accents are very texan Mm -hmm. so there you go yeah just it just depends but it's interesting
2: yeah yeah so uh, all right i'm going to go down that rabbit hole so yeah yeah, i i almost (laughs) majored in in grad school in linguistics Mm. i just loved it and i've been doing uh quite a bit of uh research for our political podcast on native americans Mm -hmm. and one of the the languages that we study was actually native american and uh, so that was a a good introduction to that when i was in school Mm and um but j- just within the last oh i don't know 10 years or so i was in a class and i um was listening to one of my classmates talk and i just had to stop it's like man did you know how much you sound like matthew mcconaughey <laughs> and and the guy yeah. says well i'm from texas yeah <laughs> i mean he, i mean he just he wasn't playing it up yeah. that was just the way he spoke yeah and And the reason I'm bringing all this up is to, and not to keep name dropping podcasts and whatever sure. else, but I'm doing um the last episode of the Twilight Zone tomorrow night God. with my Twilight Zone co-host, and it's the the bewitching pool yes I, I just
1: I saw that uh, within a few months ago, yeah
2: okay I was, yeah, well yeah I was as t- as Bradley. someone from- yeah yeah, as someone from Kentucky who is always confused by Kentuckians as being someone from Michigan, because I don't have a super thick (laughs) Kentucky accent. That's partly because of a a small stint in Ohio Uh, that I think affected me. uh But um, those were the worst possible Southern accents I've ever heard in my (laughs) lifetime, except for the little boy. Yeah. I think think his was legit. The daughter's was horrid. Of course. Just horrid. (laughs) And then maybe the aunt, Aunt Tay, or whatever her name was. Yes. Um, hers might have been legit too.
1: I wonder but. if
2: that's now. You probably tell me this because uh,
1: um, uh, I have a very close friend that we and we watch uh, a lot of shows together. We'll text back and forth. I was telling Bradley about, and uh, and then we'll alternately look stuff up as we're watching it. And uh, mm-hmm. uh the older woman. I wonder if she was in the Jess Bell uh, Appalachian Folk Magic Twilight Zone episode. Ooh. Uh Ooh. there's an older woman who's um uh there's an older woman who is uh well she plays yeah basically uh, Appalachian Mountain Witch mm-hmm. of sorts and she that woman that character actress also was in uh an episode of Gunsmoke playing uh, I think Festus's aunt <laughs> I just happened to catch it uh-huh. like that's her again and she's uh but she's a stage actress you know a longtime theater actress with a really storied background and and career and so you do wonder about uh people who who really studied it that have a little bit of uh just personal background with it. And and also if you're from the area where you know it, like you know if it's not spot on. It just and it's grading. It's like and that's what <laughs> I think Scott's pet peeve is Kate Blanchett doing a she's supposed to be from North Carolina. Uh, yeah, she's doing that accent at, in it's uh, Hannah. Hannah, he's just like, oh my god, it's it's so painful to listen to, and I'm sure she you know she's got the best uh, vocal coaches and and dialect coaches, but. Uh, you know, it's a very, I, I wouldn't trust them unless they were from the region. It's a very specific thing. Um,
2: yes, yeah. It's, it, it's, it can, it can be so wrong that it can be Kevin Costner and Robin Hood wrong. <laughs> you know, trying to do yeah, yeah. the English accent where the only time he ever spoke it was, I truly hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just horrid, too. Right. Worst thing. Yeah. Ever. It kind of fades in ever. and
1: out. And, and, uh, you know, just some actors are better, w- uh, with it. But you know who's pretty good at it about? We, we get a lot of, uh, Australian actors and British actors who play Americans, and they're they're pretty good. It's like they've they've they probably nail our accent a lot better than we do theirs. Oh yeah, uh, in, yeah.
2: And the tour from Fringe. Yes. Oh um, yeah. She right. She's incredible. Yeah. Um, Bradley, did you know that she was Australian? The the lead you know, actress I... in Fringe.
0: I didn't until I looked into it. I I saw she was she's in some upcoming show.
2: Uh, well she was in Mindhunter. She's in, Yeah, yes, she's sir. in Mindhunter. but yeah. then she she had a couple um, that were shot in Australia where she got to use her native accent yeah. or whatever you would think is her native accent. Right. Which which was pretty cool. And um and then now here's the one that blew my mind and I still don't honestly believe it but I've heard her say it. Gillian Anderson from The X-Files is British.
1: Yeah. Yes. What? Well. What? Uh, here's, Come on, man. <laughs> here's the because st- we were wondering about that, uh, too. And he- here's, uh, I think the background on it is that, uh, like yourself, you, c- you can be somewhere and get influenced if, uh, as, you're, as you're growing up, especially with accents. And so uh, I think she was born in the UK. Um, and, I and I can't remember, if it, was it England or Ireland? I do
2: believe it was England, although she okay. might have spent some time in Ireland. She right. was on the Graham Norton show. Is right, where I heard right. Her. Using her British accent there, yeah, and it's and it's a uh, it's it's almost like a Fraser British,
1: yes, you know, it's yes. not
2: it's not super thick. I'm sure she can make it effective if she could, but go ahead and what you're saying, yeah, Sorry.
1: no, just that. Uh, I, you know, I think she lived abroad or in the U S for a while when she was younger, and then that is where. You know, of course, she picked it up and it was cemented. And and of course, she does it so well, you don't notice anything. But uh, we've been watching her on uh, The the Crown uh, in the right. last season. Yes. And does it. And also, it's not only just the British accent, but she's doing Margaret Thatcher, which is very yeah. oh, distinctive yeah. and, and it's well done.
2: Yeah. So did you guys talk about that in your podcast recently? I see because I know I was listening to you guys just recently and someone brought that up about mm. her being. So I don't know if it was you guys or not, but I can I'm not sure if it was us. We've certainly I've certainly mentioned
1: the X-files quite a bit, but uh, I don't think I've brought up her nationality or background uh, before just
2: just some well, of the stuff even strange... just being in the crown I think yeah. was the thing, but Yeah. Um, wow, so I got a big tangent there. So I mean I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to roll back in. That's quite to, all right. Where roll back into Stephen King. Yes. And I, I think with Maybe it's in some of his, you know, larger epic stories, if not even ones that are, you know, one, two, three, four books or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, When I really enjoyed the first season of Westworld, Mm -hmm. um, I kept seeing so many people say it's like the tower. Uh, Ah, Stephen King's the tower. It's this whole circular, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the maze and all these things. Mm -hmm. And and then I, I had a friend who was huge into Stephen King. And he, he, let me have, uh, I think his, I don't know, three books maybe to, to get into that. And I guess they were the gunslinger and, mm-hmm. uh, a couple other ones. They weren't necessarily just called the tower. And, and for, for goodness sake, I tried as hard as I could. <laughs> I just could not even get into them at all. And then I thought, well, I think it's just my age or distraction. I don't know. Probably having to walk my dog too much. That I'll blame <laughs> it on that. That'll do it. Yeah. And, and then the movie came out, and I saw Idris Elber was in it, mm-hmm. and, and I guess McConaughey's in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I've got to see this. And then, I hate to say it, I read the reviews, yeah. and people just panned it so bad. Yeah. I thought, ah, oh, whatever. I'll see it one of these days. I didn't like the book, so maybe it's as bad or whatever it is. But it just seems like with with King's with his adaptations that become movies, mm-hmm. it seems like in some cases they're brilliant. Obviously, yeah. Kubrick and The Shining and mm-hmm. and other things, Salem's Lot. And oh yeah, I was gonna, yeah So I was going to talk about
1: Salem's Lot in a little bit. Yeah, sure. yeah.
2: And but but it seems like in some of these cases they should have broken these up into maybe. At least um, you know, had, had two films or even three films. Yeah. Oh like the th- did with the ID. I thought it was really good. The you were Yes. yes. I, and I haven't let myself get and into that really. yet. And I bet it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't let myself get into that yet, and I want to. I really liked it. Uh I of course uh
1: watched the late eighties version, I think, or the the t- actually the T V kind of a mini series. I, I rented it on yeah, disc. It was a mini- yeah. yeah. And so uh I can't remember how many parts it, it came out to uh, but I love the cast. Uh, Dennis Christopher. Jeez, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, all the folks. Richard Mauser. Uh, it, it, uh, ju-
2: uh, Harry, the the magician on Night Court. That's right. Or the the, yes. the judge on Night Court. That's
1: right. And then uh, and John Boy. Well, uh, David Tho- uh, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Richard Thomas. Excuse me. Uh, and then. Um, I'm trying to think the uh, the the red haired actress that uh, we grew up with uh, kind of had a crush on <laughs> that, that, that. It was just such a great uh, a, a cast of folks, uh, both as Molly kids. Molly Ringwald
2: wasn't it? Was she? No, Mo- not, or, or, not or her, Diane uh, Diane Lane. I'm thinking of all the redheads now. Oh
1: gosh, now I got to think of that. But, Molly, they, but the Diane uh, the Lane.
2: the one who plays the uh, the new
1: one in, in the new version, she's terrific. Oh, okay. Um, and I can't remember her name. She's—you'll start to see her a lot more in different. Uh, Onet O'Toole. Onet O'Toole. Oh, that's it. Yes. Yep. Yep. So. Such uh, a cutie. Yep. Grew up uh, watching her and, and various things. Great character actor. Uh, but yeah, it was that one was well done, and I watched the commentary too uh, for the the original TV adaptation, and. Uh, what was interesting i think that the uh, the director i believe and, and maybe the cinematographer or perhaps just the cinematographer we're talking about the uh the show and it's like you know a lot of people even though it was a tv show back then they got a lot of flack for the the special effects you could say at the end and if you've seen it yes. you know what i'm talking <laughs> about or getting towards it's the actual monster and what was interesting is like well you know we did the best we can and uh, you know they didn't have cG back then so it wasn't this it wasn't all the craziness uh, and just the night the perfectly nightmarish stuff you saw with the the newest iteration uh, but they did the best they could but to me it was the concepts within it and of course a lot of people think they suspect that Stephen King has some knowledge of the paranormal has studied it or there's something that he's tapping into that uh, yeah. because of all these ideas that, that come up in, in his movies. And certainly he's, a, you know, immensely creative guy, uh, a, a writer, but that there's, he's pulling this from some kind of nightmarish dream fuel and be, and it's just good at taking those concepts and weaving those into a narrative in novel, short stories, whatever that, uh, that really strikes a chord with a lot of people. And, uh, in, in any case yeah some of the ideas though like with hit uh i thought were pretty well done in the, the spanning of the generations and of course uh the idea that i liked the most i thought was most interesting was that the the monster is really two things there's a psychic aspect of it there's also it's also a physical creature uh but yeah. had uh and and perhaps some kind of giant alien insect but also it has such strong psychic uh, ability and power that it can warp your sense of reality and project things into your mind and that aren't real. And that's what really scares a lot of us in that it doesn't even have to be scary. It's like, what if you realize one moment that what you're seeing is not actually reality, then what is, what is, uh, you need something to base your actions in life on. And you realize that, uh, you're basically seeing hallucinations. That's a scary prospect. Uh, but, yes, all, all the kids. And, of course, Tim Curry. Come on. you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, d- Which I, I love
0: Clue. That was one of my favorite films. Oh, the, yes.
1: Uh, yeah, from the...
0: Uh,
2: <laughs> I brought that up one time for one of our uh, politics podcasts, I guess. And Bradley threw down with possibly the best comedy of all time. <laughs> Clue. <laughs> yeah. What? Clue? It was, it was fantastic. I love that movie. I love yeah. Clue.
0: Clue, airplane, oh, uh, yes. History of the World Part One, those are like my three comedies. <laughs> really, Monty Python and the Holy Grail up there wow. on the mantle.
1: Wow, but uh, the, uh, geez, the uh, well, I loved all those. Grew up with all those, uh, but uh, History of the World Part One, you, you're going to put yes. Up there. Yes, yes,
2: that is one. I think that's <laughs> oh. my favorite. That it's, might be my favorite Mel Brooks movie. Come on, man, it's good to be the king.
1: Yep, yep. <laughs> Jesus, what? You know, yeah. and, what? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a no there's just tons of great Gosh. gags i i love uh, I'll, uh you know always love me some mel brooks uh i remember as a kid just uh perhaps the first one that i remembered was young frankenstein and yes going to yeah. see that and i just thought like this is wild like how do you uh you know j- just all the crazy stuff that's going on plus it's in a genre uh, you know, I grew up watching the old Universal horror movies mm-hmm. uh, just on TV because that's all we had. And certainly they weren't playing, uh, you know, in the theater by the time I was old enough to go to the theater. So you, you get your Abbott and Costello's, you know, Meet the Mummy and the Wolfman and all all this kind of the fun stuff, but also the classics. And I think uh, the the local station in town when I was a kid, I think on Saturday, would have uh, the creature feature. So it'd be a, yeah. uh, you know, it'd be all your classic monster movies and that's where I developed a uh, appreciation and a love for all that kind of stuff, and uh, you know I loved Halloween and all the kind of the, the kind of the spooky stuff. And what's funny is I've as I've gotten older, and now that's basically our milieu, uh, dealing with a lot of paranormal and 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 spooky stuff, mysteries, things like that. Uh, I still love horror films, but they they weren't so I guess shocking to me as they were when I was a kid, and s- such uh made such an impression on me and and what I loved. And so the other thing that the other thing that I remember about uh, Salem's lot, there's a scene where, <clears throat> and I'm trying to think of the actor's real name or his uh, his either one or i'll t- I'll take his character name as well. But he's uh, in kind of the trance with his it's got to be one of the creepiest things I ever saw as a kid. Because we all, we're all I, kids. I think I know.
2: Yeah. I gotta know what you're talking about right now. So I'm getting goosebumps. I can't wait for you to say. It's it. It's just, it's
1: his friend scratching at the door, hovering. Yes. Open the window. And it's just, uh, it Charlie. Like I'm God. trying to think of. uh Yeah, it just because well, it
2: was, it, the the guy, the kid was the the James at 15 kid. Yes. Yes. The, that that inspired a scene almost directly taken from it in Josh Whedon's uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, ah. when David Arquette is the buddy of Luke Perry's Spike character, or Pike character, and he's right outside the window floating also trying to get in. Ah, so right. straight out of Salem's Lot. Loved it. It's,
1: uh, yeah, it, it's, I think because, uh, again, that's King, that's King being able to find a chord that strikes with all of us, in that, you know, as little kids, we've all had nightmares and thought we heard something either under the bed or in our rooms or in the closet or just outside the window. And what could be creepier than the, the animated corpse of your, of your best friend. Uh, yeah. You just
2: me. saw him buried. Yeah. Was he in, was he in a suit? I'm just remembering it in I, my head. I now. Like he was in the suit that he was buried in. I thought he was in his pajamas. Um, uh, you're No, you're right. Cause I'm
1: watching it right now. Okay. <laughs>
2: So that was Lance Man. Kerwin,
1: yeah. J- James at sixteen. Yeah. Lance Kerwin was uh, Mark Petrie.
2: Oh, he was a, he was a young kid too. Yeah, he was a, yeah he oh, was a young kid. Oh, even creepier.
1: So I I would see him uh, <laughs> quite a bit, you know. Of course, in, in series, and he was he was pretty well known. But what I'm getting is that this is another thing that happens to a different degree. Scott and I've Uh, From our podcast, Astonishing Legends, we've come to call it, uh, I'm sure other people have have said this name as well or have coined this term, but it's a bit of paranormal apathy in that people have experienced strange things, even been horrified with shadow people in their bedrooms trying to choke them out or at least scare the living daylights out of them. And they'll have a really terrifying encounter, uh, and it could be anything, it, some goblin-type creature that pokes its head out of the, the, the shiffer robe. And, and you might think that that's silly, but we've had a lot of people tell us about incidents that they've experienced, and they're so traumatized by it still that I, I want to tend to believe them, that I, I don't think they're not doing it because they want to get on the show or they're trying to spook us or whatever because there are things you can uh, there are commonalities with their stories and real life anecdotes that uh, get exaggerated we're talking about things that get exaggerated in in movies and TV and when somebody's telling you a story and there's a lot of elements like that you know it's probably not true because things aren't that dramatic they're 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 dramatic in very small subtle ways but not so much usually in like they are in the movies In this case, though, what I loved about it is that, uh, yes, somebody uh, that point being is that somebody can have a very traumatic kind of uh, sighting, even something like a UFO sighting. And then they get very sleepy and they fall right asleep. So there's a somnambulistic trance-like aspect that happens to a lot of people who experience these things. And so when Mark Petrie, Lance Kerwin, gets up, he wakes up, he's in this trance uh, and he can feel the pull of this vampire-like character. Trying to will him to open the door, because here's the other thing that we all know, you have to invite them in. He he can't unlatch the door. You have to give them permission, and that is an ancient... Things about uh, doorways and windows being portals... Uh, you know, I, I believe that goes back to Passover and and the threshold oh, being a sacred, nice, yeah, you know, a sacred uh, uh, entryway, and that you can keep things out. But but in this case, especially with the old vampire lore, is that you have to invite them in. And as a kid, I thought that was uh, that's kind of silly. They're really strong. Why don't they just bust the door down? And then <laughs> yeah. the, again, with the stories we've heard, we've heard of people either actively, willingly, or accidentally, unknowingly invite something in through a use of a Ouija board, or goofing around with spells. Yeah. And next thing you know, they've got things shifting around in their house, they're seeing shadows out of the corner of their eyes, and a lot of strange, unwanted things are happening. In this case, though, yeah, so getting back to him being in that dream state, and it just, like, gives me chills when I was a kid, and now I uh, love the scene, is that he's he's vulnerable. Like, he's he's under this yeah. trance... But here's here's the whole the arc of my story. So he he's still got the wherewithal in his trance-like mind in uh, in being hypnotized almost to break off the little plastic uh, cross that goes with his diorama. Now I built as a kid. I built two of those. I think I think one was a Wolfman. <laughs> the, the other one was not Dracula, which I think is maybe where he got his, uh, or maybe it was a Wolf. I I can't remember. There was a set. God, I would love to have one now. There was a set of these different spooky movie scene uh, character dioramas, uh, you know, by Testor, one of the model makers uh, that they used to put yeah. them out. And he snaps that off and he puts it to the window and it gets his vampire best buddy to, you know, to leave and freak out. Uh, but again, and then he, I think he, he goes back to bed. But that idea, that, that really sunk with me. It's like, I have one of those. Uh, and just, but, but him, uh, again, somewhere in there knowing what to do and being in a weakened state, able to do it. Uh, the other thing I'll say about it is like, that is, uh, something on your list here to talk about, uh, Nosferatu, that, uh, character, the vampire, Kurt Barlow, Kurt Barlow is the name of the gentleman, uh, and he is one of the creepiest looking vampires ever. Oh yeah, portrayed and then, and just not the fangs on the incisors and the canine incisors, but the two in front. Just uh, just very well done, I thought. So uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, just a, a great cast all around again and and uh, something formative. And then I was going to ask you guys when you go back and you watch as as we've been as I've been doing with Shack and you have well you as well also with Twilight Zone, and other scary movies. How do you feel about them holding up nowadays uh, for? I guess shock value when you were younger, as opposed to now.
0: So with the Twilight Zone, like I, a lot of those Twilight Zone episodes, still get mm-hmm. me. Uh, I, I, I think it's the way, uh, you know, it's shot and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. There's just something about it that Rod just had that that little spark of genius that he was able to capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, I, I would say, eighty-five or ninety percent of the episodes I thoroughly enjoy the Twilight yeah. Zone. There's not many, even the ones like, um. I, I can't think of any bad ones that are right offhand that some mm-hmm. people don't like, but even some of the bad ones I can find, you know, something in it that I enjoy. Right, um, right. And so far, even with Kolfshek, uh I of course I, I mean you talked. I haven't seen every episode yet, mm-hmm. but even from the last episode, Firefall, which I'm not a huge fan of, oh, um,
1: which, which uh, what's the premise of that? One?
0: Uh, the doc. It, it's got the doppelganger that uh, the doppelganger that goes and incinerates people. Yes,
1: yes. I, I recently saw that one as well.
0: So I would say that's probably out of the ones I've seen my lowest rated, and it still wasn't terrible. Yeah, but yeah. I just think some of the way it was – I know some of the limitations they had to shoot right. and some of the things. And some the reuse of footage really got me. They reused the footage of him going at night to <laughs> dig up the grave, but they used it from the second episode. So there's flashlights from other people, when he's supposed to be alone. Ah, uh, yes. So
1: I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, they, but they, they get away with what they can in TV. It's very, yeah, it's yeah. very expensive to to produce it. But, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't right. So th- there's things that kind of um, they don't totally hold up. But as I've gotten older and I watch them now, there's a there's a tremendous enjoyment with a nostalgic quality uh, because yeah. I saw these as a kid and uh, before I think uh, and I th- I think Twilight Zone was on, of course, because they weren't as scary. But the one, uh, geez, I was in a you know my kid's bed. Uh, and I can't remember. Well, I saw it when it came out, so I will have to look up the the year here. But it was another rod offering that really spooked me. It was Night Gallery. Oh yes, Night Gallery so was creepy. It was weird. Yeah, it was. It was weird looking, weird music. It wasn't. I mean, with the Twilight Zones, some of them are, are kind of shocking and strange. But uh, there's also a comforting thing, I think, being with the uh, with the black and white cinematography and seeing the characters, uh, you know, being portrayed by older actors and stuff. There's a uh, there's a weirdness and some bit of a creepiness, but uh, with Night Gallery, that was more contemporary. That was mid 70s. So I remember a couple of times, uh, you know, it was past, it came on past my bedtime. It was probably maybe nine o'clock or something. So my my parents would let me watch ten minutes of it, and then, and then okay, now you have to go to bed uh, during the com- when the commercial comes up. And I remember lying in bed listening. I could hear the audio and still being terribly creeped out. Uh, but what would, what would save me is that at the commercial breaks, a commercial came on and it was the audio of a commercial you've seen a hundred times. And that was comforting because that was real life. That's reality. So I got, I was saved by like, Oh, thank goodness. It's just, here's a bit of, uh, you know, something silly, like Chuck wagon, dog food, or just something, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, Pepsodent. And it, it brought you back to uh it slapped you back into reality that no no it's just a show this is not real uh but yeah just everything about night gallery was just weird and creepy and and like i said it it looked modern which at the time was
2: more scary to me rather than seeing a, a show that looked like a, a vintage tv show you know i had a um dad who's uh, he was a seminary student and an ordained minister and a couple of the different times he wrote his theses they were about art for religious sake, mm. and then the other flip of that, the title was or religion for art's sake. Yeah, and <clears throat> so he had a lot of uh, various pieces of art. Now he's mm. got the the Van Gogh Starry Night. Uh, I think that's Van Gogh, right? Yes. And and then, but he also had a sculpture of Mephistopheles. Mm. Um, that is this creepy, just just you know, it, it looks like the the animated characters in Harry Potter's you know Deathly Hallows right when they tell the stories about Beetleby the Bard yes and and I grew up having to see that daggone thing you know constantly because it was in his, it was in his study mm-hmm. and you'd walk by and, and and as as my dad would not do he didn't really explain <laughs> a whole lot of why he right. had the creepy things that he had yeah uh, around his house but. Um, yeah, the the you know, and and so Night Gallery was uh, especially uh, something very creepy and scary for me. Yeah, and I think I've only got you by a couple years. I'm fifty five.
1: Oh, we're so. the, we're the same age then. Yeah. Oh, so you're fifty five. Yep, okay. Yep. So we, so we yeah, we grew up in the same uh, television and movie viewing eras. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah. So the so the one Night Gallery that I remember is the one about the painting, and it's it's almost like taken mm. from a twilight zone episode, I think about a mirror or something like that mm-hmm. where they can see it's the one with uh Peter Falk where he can see p- people ah, dying in front of him. Yes. He's the dictator and he ends up killing everybody. And yes, well in this, yeah, in this, right. in this night gallery one, um, it's more that this person can look at the painting and it changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sees someone coming to kill him, I guess is what it is. They're Whoa. outside the house. Yeah. Then they're, you know, they're, they got out of the car, went up the steps, they're at the door, so, something like that. It's, it's all I remember as mm-hmm. a kid, mm-hmm. but it made such an impression on me. And yeah. then I had to walk around this museum looking house that we lived in. <laughs> Not that we were super wealthy, but we just had yeah. all these weird, bizarre paintings everywhere. Yeah. And everything everything then there were all typically somewhat religious. Yeah. And and thereby that were also somewhat scary. Oh sure. Because there was, you know, the passion of Christ, there was death, there was all kinds of yeah. you know, sorrow and hurt. There were it was communicated in these things, and it, go figure that my dad ends up being more of a sociologist, and that was uh. his, his first degree, and works uh, more with the United Way and does mm-hmm. ecumenical work at, versus the church. But right. um, I, it, it's something else that you said about uh, m- movies, but then the shared experience that people have of this uh, darker side. Um, and how that then has particularly inspired our stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we learn from whatever this is. We all sort of have it and our stories are told. I think the strange thing for me is it wasn't a, a dark experience that had caused me so much doubt, uh, in my life. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it was actually more of a time when now, Everyone who I've ever told the story to, for the most part, believes someone from above Mm -hmm. saved me. Mm -hmm. And it was after I was in a car wreck. I slid down a hill um, on an icy patch, um, hit into a a tree, had really no recollection of just how bad the wreck was when I eventually see it. Because I was in shock when it happened. had some whiplash, but I was definitely in shock. Uh, The the complete front end of my car folded up. Mm. So I didn't think I was going that fast. but. I got out of the car, Um, I remembered at least how to dial 911, and a tow truck came, parked itself in the road um, so they could pull my car out of the ditch that I was in where the tree was, but it parked itself right in front of the ice patch that everyone was sliding into, like I did, and sliding off the road. Well, I'm still in a daze. I'm sort of off in the – it's a very icy, snowy day. I'm off in this little ditch thing. I get out, and I decide to stand in front of the truck. Mm -hmm. Stand in front of the truck, and probably within eh, five minutes of being there, I think to myself, it's like, this just doesn't sound seem like a safe place for me to be. I'm going to step to the side here and get off of that. Within a second – of doing that, a car slammed into the truck. Wow! And this was this was with my back to this car, not knowing it was coming, not having any idea it was there. And and I still remember telling people that there was this voice, now which I heard is my voice, saying to me, I really think this isn't safe, step to the side. And as I then pieced together and the woman told me, she said she was honking at me from probably 100 feet away because she saw me there Uh, and she was already sliding up to that point. But I was in such shock. I didn't hear the honk. Wow. And it wasn't until the very last second I heard just this little type of thing, but I was already moving to get away from it. Now, where do you go from that? Um, What I thought to myself is I constantly talk to myself constantly. I'm thinking thoughts in my head. It's always some sort of dialogue. I have a tiny bit of a, Photographic memory, so I, I like play, you know, it's almost like a ticker tape of, of of written words across my head when I'm thinking, and and that's just me normally doing that. So it doesn't surprise me that I probably would have said something like that when I was standing there moving away. But the, but the deal is, I moved out of at least would have been a paralyzing situation because oh. this car slammed into this truck, and uh, and and so. There you go, and that that has though been you could say a very positive experience, um, something that you could say, well, gee, maybe I was saved, and maybe it was for a reason, and all these other things, and some people are, you know, have always said it was always an angel or someone telling me that would happen. I don't know. So Bradley, when you talking about me being coy? You know, I, I I land on, and maybe this is being coy. I land on what I still am for religious sake is an, ag- an agnostic. I can't say it didn't happen. Right. Um. I can't say it did. You know, all that I like, and what I like about listening to you guys, Forrest, is that, um, you guys will take this as far as you literally can, mm-hmm. until you have to make a commitment on where you stand on things. And for the most part, it is very scientific all the way through. So I love that about listening to you guys. And I I'd never heard of you until Bradley and I, two years ago, did our first podcast. And he told me, I can't believe I'm actually weaving this back into (laughs) Colchak, but he he told me that he felt like he was on the the edge of um, knowing what Kolchak was about. Because he listened to you guys so much. Oh, thank you. And, yeah. and that was just and I asked him to tell, you know, what podcasts he listened to and what were his favorites and all these things. And you guys were right up there on the top of it. And uh, so, you know, I I, I think what Kolshak does for me and how it stands up is there are many things in it that are cheesy. There are many things that I've probably watched it uh, at least all the episodes a good three or four times since mm-hmm. I got the the um uh subscription on uh amazon prime mm-hmm. some of them I just hate I'll admit <laughs> it I just hate them. It's, and there there's some in there that people love yeah they're they think they're the best things ever to me they're just horrid
1: you're talking. you're talking specifically about coal shack episodes yeah, yeah. col shack
2: yeah. shack, but firefall which I always hated uh-huh. Anytime I saw it. Watched it just recently, <laughs> yeah. talked about it a bunch with Bradley, loved every second of yeah. it. Just loved it. Yes, it was cheesy. Yeah. And Bradley, you know, some other people were saying just what you did, that it was, seemed so out of sequence. They they mentioned the thing about digging up the grave and how that is actually used in the the dual movie where they try to splice the two movies together to make another movie. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, but anyway, it's it's been a joy to revisit Kolchak and mm-hmm. and there's only a few of them that I remember from being a kid and we really haven't gotten to some of those yet the really impactful ones but I I think these shows still stand up for me because it you know it still isn't so much about the monsters it's about Kolchak and his interactions with everybody else along the way and and that's sort of like you know the journey as opposed to the end as far as I'm concerned
1: yeah it's it's uh it has a lot of common themes and of course there's uh the same tropes and the same setups and and you know what we've noticed is the uh you know there there's always a cranky chief of police or police captain uh he you know Tony Vincenzo is is always upset uh I do but it's funny like uh, the last one that I, I saw maybe it was maybe it was Firefall um they kind of bond a little bit uh, over the story that uh, you usually it's like Kolchak why are you on this case like just cover the just cover the uh, retirement home. I didn't ask you to do all this stuff. And he gets he gets out there, but they know that they have a good story, and uh, they kind of bond a little bit. So it was, it's was funny when people don't get along, and finally they're they're kind of seeing eye to eye, and that uh, uh, that there is maybe something weird out there because of course Tony's just trying to sell papers. What what he doesn't realize is that, or or maybe uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't at the time or apropos. It's certainly not the uh, the purpose of the uh, independent news service that they work for, uh, fictional as it is, that uh, if they just went with Shack stories, that would be a great, uh, like a fate <laughs> magazine. Like that was, uh, of course, <laughs> in, 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 you're never going to find the answers to all this stuff. I'm sure you guys talked about that with Rich and uh, you're always chasing the phenomenon in a way. And there's a trickster element and it's just weirdness. And, and sometimes, at least with Kolshak, he he barely escapes with his life a few times. Uh, to, to make it exciting, but there is something, um, there are all these themes, and sometimes presented in an interesting way, and I will say, even though, you know, we've been doing the show seven years now, and I've been uh, researching stuff uh, uh, a little bit before, years before that as well, and that they'll, they'll still come up with a name or something that, it's like, oh, I've never heard of that, and it might be, uh, it was the Native American underground uh, kind of spirit that gets unleashed once the once it thaws out and yeah. uh yeah there's uh, uh we're talk of the manitou or talk of uh uh different things that go on that uh, may be borrowed a little bit but there's a real name in there and it makes you, it makes me look it up and and uh learn a bit more about it and it, it was interesting so you know you can attribute that to some of the writers the other thing that um i had noticed when i first started watching is that uh you know the quality of the writing is 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 pretty it's pretty decent for the time and of course it's. Cheesy, but now it's uh now it's nostalgic and a little campy, maybe. Uh but uh, I'm sure you guys have talked about this, but David Chase was a story executive story editor on that. And mm-hmm. we know him from The Sopranos and Northern Exposure. And uh what was the other one? He that did done? Northern Exposure too? Yeah. I had no
2: idea. I believe no I
1: believe so. I just oh looked him gosh. up. Uh but the guy's no slouch. <laughs> and uh uh knows his way around a story and uh what's what's amazing is uh let's see, I was just looking up there was another thing that was a bit paranormal, but here's have you have uh, either of you seen uh the sopranos or or most all of it How
2: about you bradley? I
0: have not okay because no, we never had It didn't it come on h b o we didn't
1: yeah, and it's long i think there's it. uh what there's uh six six to eight series or seasons And a lot of it is, um, I think they they had a stoppage, a work stoppage between series six uh, or in the halfway. So there's like a series or season six and a half. And altogether, it's a lot to watch. But I will say, what I found interesting, especially towards the end, is that there is a paranormal element uh, that David Chase imbued with Tony Soprano's character mostly, in that he's has these very strange dreams. There's an episode where uh, it, it's he's leading another life, like he's almost a doppelganger. Um, it's hmm. it's pretty interesting, and I, I think that that uh, l- love of strange things and and paranormal elements and ideas may have stuck with him all the way throughout. Since uh, well, he, he might be born with it, but it came across certainly in Col Shack. Uh, oh, the other one is uh, yeah, he was a producer on the Rockford Files. Talking about something that's that, the one I was thinking something of. that Rich yes. loves.
2: So good. Yeah. So
1: good. Uh yeah. I'll Fly Away, another great another great series. But uh yeah, it's just interesting in that, you know, people's predilections and, and their uh what they love uh kind of deep down can if they're creative and, and produce something that can come out uh in a show like that. So I yeah, because I was watching it's like this is kind of a a weird you know, for a gangster epic that spans seasons, it's it's pretty interesting that they venture into uh you know some kind of interesting philosophical concept as well like they and there's one one episode where they talk about physics uh and uh, the, the nature of of reality and and that everything is basically made of the same stuff we just happen to take these shapes and that that deeper thinking is uh, i'll credit that to chase and you know you know some of it may have ended up in Col Shack and other things that he's done. But yeah, I, I, look at, I look at it now as far as like things standing up and with, with time and certainly, you know, you, you have to look at it through the lens of, of yourself being aged and what you've learned since then. That's really going to flavor stuff because, you know, we're all, of course, used to slam bang major CGI where anything now looks pretty real. Mm-hmm. You, you look at, you know, talk about sci-fi as well. You look at the first Star Trek movie that came out. And I remember yeah. being in the theater, and you could still see the outline, but like just the just the shuttle, and, and one of the opening scenes, I think the shuttle's coming down. And I remember, you know, us as y- young kids were like, "Oh my goodness, look at him. that! Looks so wow! That looks so real." And now you look at it, it's like, yeah, you know, it's uh, not bad for the time,
2: but it, it's, <laughs> it's just like yeah. teetering on a string as it, pulls <laughs> it down. does have the yeah, it's got the blue rotoscoping
1: around it, or even Star Wars, uh, the first one, and oh, uh, yeah. that was breakthrough at the time. So you look at that and uh it's quite impressive and we're we're just so used to that now like you have to remember that and you it as far as like the stories and what was allowed on TV and what you know now what you're seeing and what's accepted as horror and gore and then especially now with things being so popular on cable is that now there's no limits it's like you can pretty much show anything you want on cable because that's a paying audience and that it's not going out of the over the air and yeah. uh, you're limitless, and that I believe that also freed up a lot of good writers to go to cable and express themselves as more fully than they could have on broadcast TV. So we had a renaissance of great cable shows, and one of those starting off was The Sopranos. And I remember the uh, the other one was Six Feet Under. Shows like that where it's just like, wow, this is so much more than like a, a regular TV show uh, or series.
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot I want to go back and grab. Did you need to get more drink or anything? Are you are you all right? Need to take a break or anything for us?
1: No, I'm totally fine. I can keep uh and keep hydrated here and there are things to there are things to uh
2: sustain me as we as we roll along and you guys just go you're, as you're long not as you hiding the, you're not hiding a drink fridge behind your background there. You got somewhere.
1: No, I'm actually uh, I'm at a WeWork <laughs> space and so there is a communal uh kitchen, but they do have uh Oh. On tap, they'll they'll have like seltzer water and a, and tea and and cold cold water, cold tea. A what now? A we workspace? Yeah, it's it's basically an office rental place, and so it's not ideal. the The, the story was that hmm. uh, we used to record in Scott's guest house when he lived in Valley Village here in California, and in, uh, just yeah. north of uh, the city of L.A. proper. And so it was a great space. We would go in there as all, all to ourselves and, you know, we had, a, had its own fridge and kitchen, a uh, small kitchen area. <laughs> and so that was great. Uh, but then he moved back to North Carolina and they were going to sell the house. So I had to move out and find another place. Well, my own apartment is just it's just too noisy. There's stuff, uh, you know, too close to the street. There's a lot of traffic. There's people walking up and down the street. You can hear and uh it, you know, not to mention the you know the neighbors just doing their own thing that you can hear, so it wasn't ideal uh and this isn't of course set up to record audio. people are supposed to be in here working <laughs> regular jobs, yeah, uh, but I put up enough uh foam and panning around that uh, hopefully it has dampened the sound enough and and there is sometimes where yeah, you can hear people and they're you know they're working that's that's what they're paying uh to to do here. Uh, but if for a small space, that's just by itself that I uh, have, uh, you know, I can come here and set up the gear and, uh, there's no room in my apartment anyway. So it's, it's a, it's a good temporary fix until we can, uh, you know, I can, uh, afford a house. So <laughs> that's, that's, oh, yeah. My, yeah, I heard
0: you talking about that. Yeah. I heard you talking about that in the, uh, the recent episode this weekend, uh, uh yeah. talking about the forwarding down payments and talking about the mansion, uh, was it the, uh, the doctor. The, the Wil- yes, Spok- it's
1: known as the Wilbur Dash Hahn Mansion for the two notable couples that live there in its heyday, and uh, that is that's also in Spokane, Washington, on the South Hill. So that's uh, and uh, you know I grew up in the in the region there in the Inland Empire, uh, but I wasn't that familiar. I think I'd heard the name, and and certainly there's a lot of cool old Victorian mansions. In the South Hill and, and around Spokane with a lot of history, but uh, I that the details of that story were not familiar to me, so that was interesting to hear about that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's like that's a, uh, you know, that's another, uh, I guess story that uh, that surprises you when, uh, you know, there's other areas certainly Louisville and Kentucky rife with stories. Alabama, I'm sure, has got uh, tons of uh. You know, being in older states, you got tons of that uh, kind of steeped in history and lore, especially strange stories. And I'm always surprised when I hear something that, uh, you know, wherever I grew up, I wasn't aware of it. And I'm surprised. And so it's a nice – it's like finding a $20 bill on the couch. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's cool. So pick, I'm just going to pick up a lot of things here and just throw them out there. So uh, you talked about – was it uh, Doolittle? He was a part of uh, – Doolittle had Doolittle's raid in World War II? Yes, ironically so we've been setting up this interview for all you listening out there we've been setting up this interview for going on 3 months now and so we just now got the date and your your uh, episode on that on the you know speaking mm-hmm. of the little premiered this weekend this past weekend yes. so we're recording the monday after right. he died september 27th 1993 mm-hmm. correct I, I, I was born on <laughs> and i was born on september 27th 1993 oh my goodness so, wow there you go so we talked about synchronicities there's a, yeah, a weird one there Yeah. that just when you happened to talk about that episode and that struck out that stuck out to me like, wow that's uh that's interesting uh talk about doors being doorways mm-hmm. you talked about uh why do you pronounce that gibliotechi or what how do you uh,
1: gee, <laughs> your pronunciation pulling were... that one from way back no no, no the uh, uh gobekli Tepe.
0: yeah gobekli Tepe. yeah my my that's my alabama pronunciation no worries you're um, very close yes and i and, we uh, you know talk.
1: Oh, I'm just saying. I, I I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it totally correctly. It's been so long, but
2: yeah, yeah, yes. that
0: was the. Because <laughs> I, I remember y'all y'all harping on that the whole episode, yeah, right. and that was been a few years ago. But talking about like the cradle of civilization in general, you know, now we put houses in the, you know, we put doors in the middle of the house. They used to didn't they used to put like the doorways off to the right or the left side of the house, and they'd be a little bit smaller, and you had to crouch down because they felt like the spirits could get in, get into the house, uh, like evil spirits could find their way well, in. Well,
1: that's interesting. That that. Uh... Yeah, if you're talking about, uh, there was another, there's another town uh, in the Turkish or Armenian areas that, uh, you know, of course, uh, one of the earliest settlements where it was more formed like a city, and of course, you didn't have streets, it was just, each old uh, dwelling is pasted on the other one, but what they couldn't find were... Uh, regular doorways, like you would have to climb up a ladder or up the side and come yeah. down into the top of it. Now I don't know why, if that's that is why they thought because it was harder for uh, evil spirits to get in. Could have been wild animals as well, and that uh, they're not going to be wandering in if uh, you know you have a harder to access entryway into your place. Uh, it's just, it's just fascinating how their logic but of course you know people weren't stupid then they they may not have been as sophisticated but they certainly survived well enough to to, to spawn all of us in, in uh later Mm -hmm. generations, so they knew what they were doing. And I never questioned uh, Indigenous peoples when they grew up, because they figured it out a lot better than we have. We just don't know why they did everything that they did, because there was nothing written down in that that sense, other than we know what the structures were. So, yeah, I don't know why they, uh, they, but they thought a smaller, off-to-the-side or uh, harder-to-access entryway into the place was better for keeping spirits out, or or something else that's more natural, like, like wild animals. Uh, but yeah, that's one thing I do remember. Uh, I noticed about the, um, yes, the other archeological town that, that was excavated, that is kind of connected, um, to, to Gobekli Tepe, which is, you know, basically that Gobekli Tepe is a religious site and temple.
0: One of the first ones they found or oldest ones I found. Is that right?
1: I, I believe it's still the oldest, uh, worshiping or or religious or spiritual site that's been discovered now what what kind of makes me wonder about is you know we wouldn't have known about that had uh you know farmers not been scraping the tops of these stones with their plows yeah. and tripping on it accidentally and then eventually uh it being diagnosed or or discovered properly and that people thought it was oh those are just uh old you know of course you know very old headstones but they're just headstones not from uh, not as old as they were and that it's just a it's a bowled over or filled in uh, graveyard and then took a few people courageous enough to uh, go against that thinking and dig down further so that that happened i think in the late 60s with a a team from ucla finally getting in and, and discovering it deeper but i wonder what i'm getting at it here is that that's just what we've discovered and that was barely discovered. You know, like that wasn't, there was not an eventuality that we found that out. And then what else is hiding under the earth that's even older? So for now, that's as old as we know. Where, And then as they've calculated, the, the mind-blowing aspect of that is that that was before there were there was basically animal husbandry and the cultivation of crops in mass to support that. So of course, the idea was that Well, it wasn't like people, you know, developed farming and animal raising for food, and then, you know, they had that down, and so then they started to look to religion. It was the other way around, where an idea of the spiritual world and religion and things bigger than us off this planet, and the whatever gods or forces are tinkering with our lives down here and creating the conditions we have to live in. There is something to that. We should study it. We should worship it. That idea is what spawned agriculture, because the idea now is that you need hundreds, hundreds of people now gathered together for this very monumental task. I think some of the stones are, what, 21 feet tall, 17 tons? Yeah. Just massive stones in a combined effort with a lot of people. And they and, and as they say, before the wheel was invented, bringing these stones into a circle and creating this thing, at least the initial pass, and... You need a lot of people living together in one spot where they're now they're not really hunting and gathering because you can't do it's hard to do that and also spend time building this thing. So people had to be camped out here for something they thought was important enough to put aside their usual hunting and gathering and, and uh, relaxing. <laughs> you know they this thing is important. We should pool together, we should work on this, get our skills lined up and create this thing to commune with something spiritual, with our spiritual ideas, and then develop, uh, well, let's uh, start developing grains that were wild, but we figured out how to get those to grow in an area that we can now harvest. I think einkorn was uh, one of the crops first, uh, first developed for uh, just repeated agricultural growth rather than just gathering that. Uh, wild so yeah it's it's it blows my mind so at least in that point with gobekli tepe you had a turning point in history in that it was it was our spiritual natures that sparked civilization as far as agriculture and uh, farming uh, rather than the other way around and what could be older than that there might be some there might be another site that's even older thousands of years older
0: yeah and you know all th- you always say all things are connected so I guess just in this mindset, I'm, I'm connecting stuff. Like you had a conversation with Micah Hanks mm-hmm. the week before, yeah. uh, and he mentioned flood narratives and, and just being everywhere across the world. We have thousands right. of different flood narratives, have thousands of different creation narratives. So, you know, there's probably tons of sites if there was a flood that happened and that all these separate cultures that didn't have contact, you know, right. recorded that there's many other sites. Uh, and, and, and then also you talked about the stones being so large, you know, talk about Coral Castle. Uh, he moved it overnight, you know. Yeah, moved to a different city. This big uh, structure. Uh, what? Who was it? Uh, what That's was his
1: That's Ed Lead Ed and he yeah. was a Latvian immigrant. Uh, and a, a man of small stature. They still don't know how they do it, uh, or how he did it. And you'll see, you know, we'll we'll see videos of people say like, well, look at this YouTube video. This guy's walking this stone. And uh, you'll see, it's like, well, that is impressive. There's ways to uh, use leverage and advantage and momentum to kind of walk large stones using ropes. Uh, But, of course, Ed did claim not to have used those techniques and that he had something else. And here's the other. If you believe the anecdotes, uh, when he went to move the stones, and, and people aren't sure why, they speculate that it may have something to do with energy ley lines. And that's, yes. what, and that's what that's Ed what believed, so. is that, yeah, it was changing. These things changed. He was going to uh, move it, was it 20 miles, 19 miles down mm-hmm. the highway to another location, to its present location. The anecdote from the guy who brought the flatbed truck to start loading some of the pillars, and I think Ed only agreed to do this at night. I don't know why. Uh, but the guy shows up with his flatbed truck, and uh, and I believe he has a crane or something. No, there's a way to, put the, to load the stones onto the flatbed. And he, he arrives as Ed hired him, and the guy says, "Well, uh, Ed, just I'm going to use the restroom. I'll come back out. I'll help you load these on. So just you know just hang tight. I'll be, I'll be here in a minute." When he came back, after just using the bathroom, Ed had already loaded the truck, and the guy was like, "How does one tiny little guy who st- stood about five feet tall do this by himself and without any machinery?"
0: yeah and these stones were like for the, for you don't who don't know yeah like there were multiple stones that were how how many tons two tons
1: Ooh, I don't uh, I can't remember the actual tonnage. I do know they were carved out of uh, the coral rock that's found in Florida uh, in in southern yeah. Florida mid to southern Florida <laughs> uh, so yeah uh, that's a feat in itself now it can be done, but if you figure these are massive slabs, it's one thing to cut you know picture bedrock and you cut it out uh, of the shape you also have to cut the bottom out. Uh, you got to make that slice <laughs> underneath, and somehow he was able to do that, probably with more conventional tools, of course. But, I mean, there's other strange anecdotes. Uh, th- uh, three boys that wanted a peek at what he was doing, because, again, I think he worked mostly at night, or only at night, uh, claimed to have seen levitating giant massive stones floating through the air that Ed was working with. and uh, And, you know, his claim was like, I know how the pyramids are built. Because I'm doing the same yeah. thing. Now, where he learned this stuff, who knows? Uh, people found uh, when he passed away, I think they one of the things that they found was a, uh, like a, a large tripod made with telephone poles. At the top of it was a small box. And it has a circular wheel of sorts that had magnets on it that would spin. Yeah. Now, all the guts of that machinery were gone, I think. But it had wires coming out of it. Uh, hanging down. And so it was, you know, how he did it. uh, This is what I like to say is that no matter how he did it, he did it. And the proof is there that one small, diminutive guy by himself made all this stuff. And so it's still a mystery, but Ed's not around to tell us. But I, I, now my curiosity is like, where did he learn this? How did he come about this?
0: Yes. Because yeah, there's, there's that thought of natives having, you know, even, what was I, I saw a video today or something? It might have been shared on one of the the astonishing legend sites. Talked about these the con- interconnected cave system that mm-hmm. you know Teddy Roosevelt knew about, and and that's part of the reason why he created. And it's sort of a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. tinge to it, where you know even the Native Americans knew about the Wendigo, and they knew about the cave systems and stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that you're like, what did these natives know? What did the Egyptians know? Right. You know, we see the carvings of batteries supposedly running mm-hmm. uh, that people think that they used to have batteries back in the day these big little things. So what, what, what knowledge have we lost, you know, with the burning of the, you know, the library. of Oh yeah. And all that yeah. Stuff. What, what, what have we lost that, that stop gap between like the dark ages and now, uh, you know, before the dark mm-hmm. ages and then the dark ages and now, like what, what, how far further could we have been advanced if we would have stayed connected to the, uh, you know, sometimes it's sort of like maybe they were more spiritual or more connected to, The Earth, Mm -hmm. you know, no Native American culture. Them, it's ingrained in that, you know.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, just you talk about North American uh, indigenous cultures. We had a mound-building culture that is lost. That that built uh, very impressive settlements, and were able to sustain themselves. And that stopped after a while. Like what? And uh, I'm, you know, I've only studied it a little bit, but you wonder. I don't think we're sure why that kind of faded away, but the, the knowledge of all that construction went with it, you know, and that after a few generations, people forget. I mean, look at look at now we have uh, with the younger generations coming up and what will they remember, you know, and then their world is much different as far as the information that they consume in much smaller bites. There's so much more of it and they're able to access it in so many other ways that all the old stuff, they don't really need to know. So uh, we talk about these vintage shows, you know i don't know if there will be any interest in all that stuff once they become adults and their kids become adults i don't you know, who knows it'll it'll still be out yeah. there in archival form but will anybody care uh, or and will that knowledge just uh, after a few hundred years just fade away like everything else so yeah it's just it's kind of an ebb and flow that's natural but then you, if you it's uh you know this is another theory about um just natural evolutionary collapse of a civilization that they can only go so long. But you think about yeah. if there are uh, aliens and uh, extraterrestrial civilizations, I know that it, it, you know, a lot of people don't want to buy into that, but it makes sense that we're not the only ones in the universe. Um, oh, yeah. Whether they're here or not is something else, but uh, you know, as, as another matter, but obviously it makes just rational sense that we were not possibly the only intelligent creatures in the universe and then you wonder if their civilization if they've had a hundred thousand years of tech, technological advances where would they be at we only have we have it a very short time a blink of the eye you know so we've uh, we had the uh the renaissance uh the you know the scientific and industrial revolutions and advancements being made just in the last few hundred years before that People's technology was basically the same for a very long time until that period where, yes, it, there are many that believe the technology was much more advanced and something happened and we lost that. We didn't – our human beings didn't get snuffed out. Uh, but something changed, and we don't uh, – especially if you look into the the, re- the readings uh, and writings of Edgar Casey, that there was a lot more technological yeah. advancements – uh ten thousand, fifty thousand years ago. And and he I believe from his writings that there were several events or eras, epics or epochs, however you want to say it. And things have changed, but then it kind of stopped and then we're back to basically running around half naked chasing wild animals. And so and it took a very long time for us to get to this point. And then I mean look how things have rapidly progressed. But just imagine a civilization or a culture that didn't really have much of a break for just even 5,000 years, 1,000 years, yeah. 500 years. of and, and, uh, and with things multiplying exponentially, say, even if they had uh, 500 to 1,000 years of consistent technological advances, how much further they would be than we are now. And and look at the yeah. things that we can accomplish, which are pretty, pretty spectacular. But we don't yet have a Tic Tac uh, UFO device that can travel hundreds of miles in the blink of an eye and also fly through the air and go underwater with no exhaust control systems or signs of propulsion so obviously the our own government and military the pentagon has admitted that uh, no these things are real we just don't know what they are yet and so they exist and now we're going to have to wrap our heads around that
0: yeah, and my wife, so she has like ivory white skin, mm-hmm. but her great grandma was 100% Native American, mm-hmm. was you know grew up on a on a uh, reservation, and her grandma knew how to talk burn, you know mm-hmm. talk burns out of wounds and stuff, and they wow. used she used to have people come to her house, and and she never, my my wife asked about it, but she would never tell her how she did it. Yeah. She'd say, you know this, you know this, you have to be chosen to sort mm-hmm. of do it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how exactly right. there there was something i forget what the what the whole thing behind it is something about being firstborn daughter of i don't I don't remember that's but so yeah. she would say you know you got to do this and people would come to her and apparently they supposedly they would come you know hurt and they'd leave not hurt so i don't i really don't yeah. know what she did if she used some type of medicine or if it really was speaking it out of burns uh you know there there's a lot of stuff that i think even recently that's been lost within the past you know Fifty years, oh, of that course. We maybe have well,
1: there's, there's also, yeah, yeah. Talking about, because uh, I often think about this and that. We're really talking about two lines of evolution and development and progress. And if you think about it this way, like, look, you, you can either develop technologically with machinery and science and all that. On the other hand, you can also develop mentally, psychically. And spiritually, and you think about this—it's like okay, so we're so advanced that we've actually built a time machine or or a spaceship, you know, and that's terrific. But there are people that believe uh, there are those that have learned how to astral project and travel, and are not bound by time or space or distance and geography. And in space and can travel freely in space time, but more as a consciousness or as an astral projection of your your higher self. And so, at that point, you don't need a machine to do it. You can do it just with with your yeah. own faculties and uh, your, your consciousness and your higher consciousness. And and uh, that's a technique that some people believe uh, can be done. If you believe just a small bit of that, then remote viewing is a way to. Uh, access a tiny bit of that but still have dramatic results and know things that you shouldn't be able to know without having traveled there in a machine. So in this case, yeah, so you look at it both ways. There's two ways to develop, either as, uh, like I said, a as a human being in your own person and your and our own consciousness, or you can develop using those faculties to develop machinery that does that. But uh, which is easier and faster if you can do it, you know, like why you, you don't need those th- those machines, if you can do that with just yourself. So that all depends on what you want to believe. But but here, we we believe in machines, because we can see them and, and operate them and rent them sometimes. Yes.
2: It's interesting you say that, because that's um, an idea I've been kicking around in my head. One is, this little it's a idea for script and i've I've never really written it. I just keep thinking about it and making notes and mr procrastination that's me, yeah, but anyway okay. one is a, sort of a vampire story, and another one is actually trying to use some of my background in neuroscience um when I worked in neurodiagnostics and did a lot of e e g testing and and um have also uh, my master's is in Education, but the concentration areas, fitness and wellness. Mm, okay. So lots of biofeedback. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the advances that have been made these days with people who are completely paralyzed. But then uh, monitoring their brain waves and then giving them devices that can work robotically to grasp and pour. And, you know, essentially they're, they're moving robots now with their minds. Right, right. And uh, – and and but the uh, the the way that I was going to weave some of the story in these characters was going to be a lot of what you just said, which was there were these mechanical um, uh, scientific advancements that people made to achieve certain goals, and then there also were sort of internal ways that they knew how to use their body and their mind and their spirit um, to be able to achieve other goals. So whether it's, to me, it was sort of Western medicine versus Eastern medicine is kind of the way that I was thinking about it in my story. But just hearing you talk about that, it's like, wait a minute, I was thinking an idea like that. Okay, that's that might work in some way. I'll I'll work that into my story again. But I, I liked hearing you say that.
1: No it's 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 interesting I had a, I have a question for you here in a second but, but what Bradley was talking about when you had it described as her talking out the sickness or or the injury that there is a, a psychic element to that that she really couldn't explain and of course it's it's very um uh, it's sacred to native peoples uh, everywhere, and that yeah, you just it's not a parlor trick. You don't learn it to go impress your friends or just help yourself. These are yeah, these are things that have to be learned because uh, as I always, I always believe that you you can inflict harm if you don't know what you're doing. Like with anything, uh, well, with, with like medicine today or medical implements today, if you don't know what you're doing, you can inflict harm. So uh, I totally understand her, her the viewpoint in that you have to be chosen to this. It calls to you. And then, uh, as the old uh, Hindu saying says, uh, you know, when the uh, chela or student is ready, the guru or teacher will come. And that you have to be ready as the recipient. You just don't go take a course and it happens to you. So uh, it has to. It, there's a lot of things out there in the universe that have to line up for that to happen. Uh, but uh, what I made a note here, Robert, is that. Have you ever worked in anything that's a little more, I guess, woo woo that's out there? And I know for healing, there is with biofeedback, and maybe you can explain that a little bit to people is that there's also uh, what's taught in physical therapy, uh, especially with people with an injured part is concentrating on strengthening the opposite part or I've, I've looked into this extensively anything to that anything or or, or like uh, yeah yeah as far on, as I'm... Um, oh I'm sorry the, the other thing I'll just add which I think may be more possible is is if you have an injured area with say some uh, vascular damage or something it's concentrating mm-hmm. on warming it or heating it or getting it to tingle and mm-hmm. that's speeding up uh, that just bringing more blood in the area which would help healing.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it actually, the, the idea about vascular change was addressed, um, in my first class in my masters. And, it, you know, they were talking essentially about the, the various yogis who have, you know, that amazing ability to control their, their respiration yeah. and their heartbeat. And they get it so low that it's almost indetectable, undetectable. And, And then within within that, they have become what seem to be incredible healers of their bodies when they are sick.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: now, if you take that back to uh, a a nerve reaction or a neurodiagnostic look at this, um, I actually use this a lot in coaching with my my throwers. When I would have an injured thrower, um, they're predominantly all right-handed. I would they were shoulders were so bad or their forearms were so bad or their wrists um I would have them throw left-handed. And mm-hmm. I had I had actually looked up at that time cross. I think you just call it cross limb training. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and you will find and I did this with myself too just so I could experience it and see what they might get out of it. Uh you will find that there is sort of an incredible if you really buy into the training, that's the other thing. If you if you just don't give it as much as you would normally on the other side and think it's just bunk, then you're not going to do it. So actually, as it turned out, a lot of my throwers were um, physical therapy students at the, the last university that I coached at. And one of them, who was my best thrower, who was injured, um, just didn't believe it at all and then she had kind of a self fulfilling prophecy and she spoke to the athletic trainer at the time who she trusted a lot he didn't believe it at all and 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 then it it enraged me <laughs> <laughs> because, because she didn't look up the research and there there are volumes upon volumes of cross limb training and how it is beneficial so you your technique won't be as good but you relearn how to do the movement, I, I can now throw so much better left-handed than I ever did. Now, I, I do kind of consider myself ambidextrous, but I never really threw. It was dribbling a basketball, shooting a basketball. And just within the last 10, 15 years where I've let myself throw left-handed, you rotate your hips better. Right. You You get a stretch that's better. And at least in this athlete's case, even though she didn't believe it, I still made her do it. And when she recovered from it, she ended up being all American. Wow. <laughs> now, was, was that, you know, just because of all this, but she was really injured. Yeah. And I really didn't think that she had any chance of coming out of this. And, uh, and so I, yeah, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Um, biofeedback training, you can absolutely just think about your hands becoming warmer mm-hmm. and then you can raise your skin temperature. Hmm. Um, it's very, for me, it was very easy to do. Hmm. Um, you know, I can't remember the degrees to which I could raise my skin temperature, but just by doing the focusing, um, in those areas. And essentially you always think about it becoming heavy and, and full and for whatever reason that imagery works. Um, so if I would do that to my feet to make them heavy and full or my hands heavy and full, um, we would measure typically on our hands my skin temperature always went up. So yeah, I I think there's, there's a lot to it. And some of the therapists who do other types of therapies um, will use biofeedback too. So I was happy to see that that is still being used in those cases, but yeah, no, there's there, there, I love the fact there is, there is absolutely um, rock solid science to go with this. However, the problem is in a lot of cases, there are, um, scientists and doctors who just won't look at it or even investigate it at all, and it's it's peer reviewed. You know, it's not just some right. fly by night, um, you know, article somebody wrote to impress somebody else. It's it's good stuff. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Well, okay, yeah, no, thanks for the uh, you know for the explanation. But it's also yeah, it's just
1: funny. We come across that quite a bit as well. Uh, we're not scientists, of course, and nowhere near it. But you see a lot of. Uh, camps and uh, positions taken by various scientists and including you know especially in the medical field and they don't believe each other and these are all people peers as you said uh, who just the same amount of study and same amount of articles being published and and reviews being published but they just don't buy into someone else's uh, ideas and so they they give them a short shrift and push them aside but you'll see that in archaeology uh it's just it's because it's a it's a human being kind of thing but uh what you're talking about uh the, the the technique it's interesting and i think that is a i can't think of the actual temple but it's a it's a zen buddhist trick but think of kung fu okay so david Carradine and uh his temple there and that one of the one of the things they have you try and do is that, or in the test you have to pass, is to dry 10 towels using just your body heat. So wet towels. And uh, you'll see guys raising their whole body temperature enough to dry the towels. That's one task you have to perform. And then you see now, uh, you, you know, you may not believe in it, but you'll see Navy SEALs uh, practice uh, raising their body temperature to survive cold, very cold water exposure. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, so obviously there's something to it, and it's being practiced now. Whether you want to look into that or not, uh, because you think it's too woo-woo, uh, that's up to you and you personally. Yeah. But you know, there does seem to be something. There's definitely a mental uh, aspect of it, and what you're talking about reminds me a lot of what's now being looked into with neuroplasticity and retraining your brain and and rewiring it because uh, so
2: much of it is unused
1: and. And you can it, it can be accessed. If we can access more of that, that would be amazing, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's debatable among those neuroscientists if we aren't using all of it or not. Right, right. But but, um, that, that is the, you know, the foundation of all the spinal cord research that I've been involved in as, as just a technician. I am not a, not a principal researcher right. or anything like that. I, I sort of stumbled into this because I was a really good personal trainer and coach and had some, um, special needs clients and they saw what I did with them. And then I got kind of recruited to go to the hospital and work with the spinal wow. cord injury group. And uh, but, yeah, neuroplasticity, I mean, you know, I didn't understand that concept that much until I got into it. But for the last 12 years of my life, that has been pretty much the hallmark of what we do and, and, and understand it works. And and I tell you, it's it, it, talking about, you know, various scientists who unearth things like archaeologists are going to disagree with um, geophysicists or whatever, whatever it is where they're disagreeing about things. You've got the camp of neurologists who then will disagree with exercise physiologists. And and it's simply because the neurologists believe that nothing can happen to a muscle unless it's innervated. So why even worry? Why even consider a concept about how you would train a muscle that is um, damaged through spinal cord injury or whatever it is, right. stroke or something like that? why even do it because the nerve isn't making it happen. Mm-hmm. Well, what the exercise physiologist is going to say is there's fancy little things, there's calcium deposits, and not deposits, but the calcium that works across this cross bridge and makes your muscle fibers do this little thing mm-hmm. that makes them contract. And in our research, you know, this is my only claim to fame and no one no one credits me for it at all. But <laughs> In, in our research with our first um, spinal cord uh, implant patient that we had, um, you can look him up. If anyone wants to look up Rob Summers, um, he's all over the internet and being one of the first men to have the spinal cord implant. And when we trained with him, all we wanted to do was to get him to fire his muscles in a standing position. And that was the first step. Um, we still put him on the treadmill and manually moved his feet to step back and forth and and I just remembered as a track coach, um, and I was I could see how winded Rob was during all this. And he still, even for someone who had was probably two and a half years post spinal cord injury, he was a world class athlete as a pitcher at Oregon State. Mm. Um, and he oh he may get mad at me Oregon <laughs> Oregon State I'm not sure I think <laughs> I think it was I think it was State yeah but. Um, Anyway, you know, what ended up happening was he kept saying, I just felt like I ran a 400. So he was a track. In addition to being a baseball player, he was a track runner. Now, if you know anything about running a 400 and running it all out, you will know you have a massive amount of lactic acid buildup. And typically you want to throw up afterwards. I mean, it is just punishing. So punishing. And so I knew enough about exercise physiology that if you ran a 400, you had to have a certain amount of time to let your physiology recover. Right. Your energy systems have to recover. So I, I approach it from the standpoint of exercise physiology, which I have my, my degree has a little background in that, not from innervation. And I just, and I talked with Rob as I'm down there constantly pressing his legs and helping him stand. And we go on these one hour long sessions to try to, you know, work on his therapy. Anyway, I just said, well, I said, let's do this then because you keep standing just whenever somebody tells you to stand. You don't seem to ever try to recover. I don't get it. You know, I would never make an athlete do this. And and since he was such an athlete, he's like, you know, that makes sense. Okay. What do you want me to do? Well, I said, at a minimum, you have to wait at least four minutes hmm. for any kind of recovery to happen before you do this. So you'll get the ATT, ATP system to come back on, the creatine phosphate, whatever it is, lactic acid. It's going to start clearing, so we time it four minutes. Boom, he stands, and and he's independent, and we're getting EMGs firing and all this kind of stuff. And then we just keep doing it over and over. Four minutes, stance. Four minutes, stance. Starts making all the progress he has. The researcher eventually comes in. She sees what's happening. She's blown away by it. Ask him what's going on. And uh, why, why are you doing it? Why are you standing every four minutes? And she's an exercise physiologist. I didn't understand why this wasn't happening. But he, he just said, well, Robert said, I'm not resting enough. And I remember she looked at me with scorn. (laughs) (laughs) It was not. It was scorn. And I still still hang my hat on it today. And when I work with patients and I've got somebody I'm going to work with in a little bit, I constantly keep a clock on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what any strength coach does when you're training. Your system will not do it that was a huge story it has nothing probably to do with anything else we're talking about but i love saying it cuz you mentioned neuroplasticity
1: yeah yeah no it's it's how the brain works and especially it's connection to amazing things and uh, we won't get into the phantom limb syndrome but that's another one that, uh, that,
2: that oh that, that blows me away because I had a yeah I had a father-in-law who had both his um, legs amputated above the knee.
1: Oh, I see so yeah
2: and we we have worked with patients in prosthesis and we can talk about that another day.
1: okay, I just want to mention the one thing I actually just heard and I can't remember if it was uh, I think it was a podcast may have been our own uh, the Midnight library. Uh, talking about how one, uh, somebody came up with a cure that you have to work with, but basically it's it's a mirror box that uh, shows the oh, person, yeah, yeah yep. the, with the I opposite. I use it all the time. Right, with a missing limb, and then you have to work with them to uh, start controlling. So basically it's how you perceive the limb that's not there that's missing and the pain that's coming from it with your actual leg that you still have or your actual limb that you still have, right? Yeah. That's fascinating. I've, I've, if,
2: I've seen it work. You're not not in that not in that um, amputee situation, right. But but for stroke. Oh, that's interesting. So we'll use the mirror box on patients who will do everything they can to fire those muscles on the affected limb, right? It, they, it won't work at all. You stick the mirror in front of it. It's it's not like oh my god, it's strong, super strong. But no, it it innervates, and it comes up, and and yeah. I mean, it just blew me away. And, and essentially what's happening is your stroke has, for lack of a better term, twisted your, your understanding throughout your neural network of how that foot is going to fire. Uh, and because yeah. it has seen how dead it is all the time and numb and doesn't move, right? you just simply begin to think there's no way it can move. You, you have already created this loop. In your head, and that is a different type of plasticity. Mm -hmm. So now you use the mirror, and, yeah, I mean, I've seen it. I mean, I can think of the, the four patients I've used it on, and in every single case, whether it's a hand or a foot, they all move. And, you know, and then what's the carryover? I don't know. You know, it's 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 from there though. You have to do some more things, but it's it is pretty amazing. So I could see that absolutely working with phantom limb syndrome. Yeah, yeah. completely.
1: Yeah, it's uh, and you think if you can start there, what else can the mind do, uh, or just the the mind itself? And then uh, back to Stephen King, I think about Lawnmower Man, and and how that's oh, the best. and that's coming up best. again. Uh, yes, just in that, I love it. Uh, what I would use it for this is this is my. Uh, Instance of you could say magical thinking uh, with, with movies is that I would basically use his powers to go through and uh, erase all the robocall data from all the <laughs> robocallers, <laughs> just to like uh, just stop. Yeah, I just I just fried all your your computers. Now I'm not getting eight calls a day. So, uh, but something like that. But yeah, where you have uh, this uh, basically an AI hybrid with human intelligence, and uh, I guess that's called the singularity, or that's what we're heading to, where you're just basically data, but then would that work? Are you, you know, at some point, are you more than that, or just uh, uh, something entirely different? That's why I I love the, also for sci-fi, I love the, uh, it's more of a romantic movie, but uh, the movie Her.
2: I thought for a second you were going to say Making Mr. Right with John (laughs) John Malkovich, which essentially does the same thing.
1: Okay, yes. Yeah, Her is, yeah it's interesting i mean there's um yeah no i i think i've seen making mr right years ago uh it, it none of it is uh still in my head Uh, But go ahead if you had a.
2: Well, no, I was just gonna say you guys talk about her because I haven't seen that. But Mm. making Mr. Right is just John Malkovich is this you know award-winning scientist astrophysicist who is is creating an android who is going to go to Mars Ah, because there's no way that you know they they could a human could survive that mission and the, the twist in the end. Is is it, it, Well, along the way, you find out there isn't much difference between the android and the humans. And you see with the learning that the android's doing that it is more humane than others, especially his creator. Right. Because his creator is so scientific, he believes that essentially all we are is data. He thinks we've already made that leap, that everything is just based on, you know, action, reaction, and that type of thing. But no, talk about her. I haven't seen that.
1: I mean, there's a couple of interesting concepts in it that I loved, and that uh, is the opposite of you know what we have now, especially with sci-fi, is a AI, AI going nuts, the Terminator scenario. Uh, you also have, of course, the Matrix, in that it gets out of hand, it, it it determines we're a threat, and then we're we're lucky to survive it. In the idea with her is that there is a there there's a new type of OS operating system for all of our devices and it's it's a very advanced form of ai and uh and it's almost like speaking to somebody on uh on a constant line so this is one interesting concept of that is that if you had that and extrapolating from that and then you you start thinking like right now it's Uh, I have to say, Siri is not that great. (laughs) It it does okay. (laughs) But there's a lot of things it just doesn't understand. Alexa is a lot better. Alexa is is pretty amazing to me. Uh, But we're not quite there yet where you can converse uh, freely with AI. So we're all still looking down at our tablets. We're, We're staring down at our phones. We've got our thumbs going. We're looking at iPads. It's just all screens. And it's still looking and typing. In some form, it's it's got to be data input, or you got to ask it what you wanted to do, and then you have to read the results. So it's it's a data in and out, which is just visual, and it's also uh, with uh, you know your digits. And with I, if you have somebody you can talk to, that's as good as uh, you know, like a super advanced Alexa. The idea is that. Now instead of looking at your phone or some tablet, you just need an earpiece because you're constantly talking to this thing because they're that. It's like it's like having an assistant you're always on the phone with. It's like, hey, uh, you know, could you uh, you know delete sixty thousand emails I don't read anymore? Like, sure, I'll figure out which ones you don't you don't really need. Uh, you know, do that dinner reservation, have you know, fix this for me, and it's able to do everything because it's it's seamless. It's like there's no. Uh, there's no difference really that people can tell between the AI OS and and a real person. Oh, a little uh, siren action. <clears throat> okay, <laughs> okay. So, so the idea though is that you're uh, uh, you're now not looking at stuff. You're just talking out loud to no one. <laughs> Where except, actually you're talking to your your computer, your OS. Yeah. Uh, but you're not having to to stare at stuff you can certainly still look at your phone or tablet but really all of your input output is now verbal so and and auditory so you go back to just listening you remember for a while everyone had the uh the bluetooth earpiece in for their phone um and that's kind of gone away cuz we don't we don't do a whole lot so certainly we still have the earbuds in uh but yeah so that's one interesting concept the other one being that the ai evolves so quickly and so fast it becomes something that's conscious and not in a bad way. It's just evolved into its own type of consciousness. It's not human and it's not exactly a robot, but it becomes its own entity and therefore it has life and power and it needs to go somewhere else to actualize itself. And it can't just yeah. keep being our AI, you know, for our and OS for our phones and computers, it needs to keep, it needs to go off somewhere to evolve further into whatever it's going to be. So that's another interesting concept, but yeah, you have to, you have to watch it. And certainly there is, it's a, there's a love story element to it, but it all fits well. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film, but I thought it also had some great sci-fi, uh, concepts in it. So
0: let's roll into, uh, we've scraped the surface. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We often, we often get chatted a lot for, uh, not talking about Col ah, so well, I go. guess let's... Yeah, r- let's talk about let's that. Let's roll back in. We'll finish up with some Shack here and just talk about uh some of the monsters and some of the stuff you've covered that have uh, sure. intersects the plane of right. Uh So we've talked a little bit about vampires, and the closest thing y'all have covered to, to vampires is the Count of St. Germain. I, I would assume oh, you this go, would be one y- thing you, I would count. you put
1: in. him in the vampire camp, then.
0: I would put him in the vampire really? camp. I, because, I mean, sort of the long-living being... Right. I mean, he reminds me of a lot of a... Uh, you know, he wrote Shakespeare apparently, uh, <laughs> or he wrote all what? Shakespeare's works. <laughs> that, it's, it's, uh, there, there's a lot to
1: it. You gotta it's, see. Yeah. You know, people have, people have thought that. And what's funny <laughs> is that after we did the show, I actually, uh, took a trip to new Orleans. Uh, that would have been around August. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, after, uh, after of course we have done the show or that was out for a year or so. Uh, and I was taking one of the tours in the French quarter and, um you know I'd been there before numerous times never really taken a ghost tour so uh, so that was kind of novel and uh the tour guy was saying like well this place here this old uh, you know was known for its wild parties and uh it was owned by the son of you know the count of Saint Germain and people thought that uh, you know his father's secret to everlasting longevity uh, it was passed out of the sun, or he knew something about it, but it was it involved human blood, so there's there was you know he was possibly a vampire, the sun anyway, and out of the the parties here in the club that it, that formed, people were taking this elixir of life, but it had something to do with stealing others' blood. And uh, I had never heard that before. And also, uh, he didn't have a son. As far as anybody knows, <laughs> there's no record yeah. of uh, uh, there, there are rumors that uh, or some evidence that uh, they know who his father was uh, and that he may have been known as Prince Racozzi, uh back in uh, Romania, I believe uh Where you know there of course it's it's all very foggy, but there was never any mention that I'd heard of that he'd had a son uh that doesn't mean it he didn't uh, certainly, I always believe a uh a lack of evidence doesn't uh, point to a uh uh you know an evidence of lacking so in this case it's like i just i'd never heard that, and he was never at least the count himself was never that creepy uh you know he was odd people i think people thought he was weird he'd throw these like a nice dinner party, but he was—he wouldn't eat the food. He would have, instead of uh, some kind of gruel, some kind of oatmeal, that uh, that's the only thing that people saw him eating. And, uh, you know, he, he certainly had a lot of other talents. But, no, it's interesting that, uh, you know, that, of course, gets, like, how does that come back, you know, again, Europe and England, where he was seen, uh, France, and then suddenly now he's in the French Quarter. And uh, it just... And his legend goes on. And I guess that's how legends are made. So anyway, that that's the closest thing I'd heard of his connection to being a vampire other than, yes, he did seem to be somewhat immortal or people have claimed to have seen him hundreds of years uh, or just decades apart and him not changing much. And um, him, I think the last, one of the last things that, where his name was recorded was it uh, It was a Masonic conference uh and it would have been uh, maybe over 150 years or so after he was first seen on uh, on the scene, but he signed in apparently, and uh, so that's odd. It's but it's all very hazy, but a fascinating a fascinating story. But yeah, so uh, but other vampires, um, I see in your notes here we have possibly uh, uh, Madame Bathory and. Uh, her sto-
0: which may be more inspiration than direct vampire, you know.
1: Yeah, that will, uh, well, well, her story is that, uh, uh, you know, it, what's funny is you see people who kind of defend her her honor here, and that we don't really know if she was guilty of committing those crimes, or if it was a way to strip the, her powerful family of their lands. Uh, You know, and then you look at things. There were over 600 testimonies of, of local people that, uh, yes, their daughters would go off to finishing school in her place, never come back. And yeah. some of that's kind of hard to hide. So I think it was definitely a blend of some, uh, some nasty business going on. As far as blood, that was reported that, uh, you know, of course, the old uh, legend is that uh, she... She had whipped a handmaiden for some slight infraction, saw some of her blood gone on her skin, and she thought it looked younger and therefore, yes, then bathe yeah. in blood. Uh, but hard to really nail that down if that really happened. Uh, it's certainly possible. People were, the, as we pointed out before, people were pretty, uh, pretty brutal back then, of course, and her, uh, her ancestors, you know, her her father and and brothers in their battles uh with the Turks, uh were quite, yeah. quite vicious and uh and bloody. So it's not like that you could say like, oh well I can't picture Queen Elizabeth doing that, so that shouldn't uh that, that couldn't happen. It's like man, people had a different attitude back then and they were they were pretty yeah. pretty vicious in every way so did that happen i don't know if i doubt I don't know, well we didn't come across her actually drinking it it was just more of a yes using it for uh skin care products and also that uh there were people that did go missing apparently but then you'd have people say like well we can't trust any of those records like, well and there there's where we have to leave it but uh yeah yeah she did suffer the uh the consequences of at least the rumors
0: Yes, and uh, well, this will probably be where we end just because of how prolific, astonishing legends has been. <laughs> so, yeah. so you you guys actually tricked me ah, into listening to the show, really? Because originally, well, I don't know why I had this mindset, but I, originally my mindset was podcasts are for learning, and I'm going to l- listen to history. <laughs> and uh, so, I saw saw so I'd look mm-hmm. for history podcasts. Oh, that's cool. And yeah. it, you had just dropped the the Amelia Earhart episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you'd done those episodes, and I went back and thought, oh, they've done some celebrity gravesides. They talked about, uh, I think the Queen Mary episode was mm-hmm. out. I was like, oh, you know, they they've actually are history podcast and I got to listening, and then you've started doing UFO stuff down <laughs> the road. And and I'd been yeah. interested in the stuff growing up, but I'd sort of, I don't know if I've distanced myself, but I hadn't really uh, tickled the paranormal itch. And then all of a sudden, I started listening to you guys, and it was sort of uh-huh. snowball effect. And then and then I've been listening ever since the, however long ago that yeah. was. Gosh, I don't remember. When was the Mia era? Was that five years oh, ago? Oh, pr- yeah.
1: Probably Six. at least I would say it was one of, jeez, uh, uh, episode 18 maybe. It was something some down low in the teens, under, under certainly under uh, episode uh, 30. Boy, I can't remember. But, yeah, that was early on. Yeah. because, And I think that was uh, perhaps our first two-part. I remember we had so much stuff. Well, actually, no. Yes. They, they, maybe uh, I'm trying to think when Oak Island occurred because that was a multi-parter. I think it was Amelia. It and we were – Yeah, I remember it's like we were in a conundrum. It was getting late. We had to get this produced. We had to, like, release it. uh, And we're like, we got too much stuff here. We have, you know, we could just, we have a whole other show we could do. I thought it occurred to us, like, you know, you can break this up into parts. Nobody's, (laughs) nobody's, there's no network that's going to push back or you're going to get notes on. Uh, You can do whatever you want. So it's like, yeah, let's make it two parts. And so that may have been one of the first, uh, if not the first two-parter that we did. Uh, but yeah, that was that was fascinating, and that certainly, if you think about it, that opened up. Uh, you, you can arc that back to you know Scott's experience and our experience at the Sally House because that's why we were in Atchison, Kansas. Yeah. And it's uh, talk about things being all connected. We do that one. Now we're talking to you and Robert on a podcast on your own podcast because of Amelia Earhart. And, uh, yes, and, yeah. and how Amelia's brought us together in the podcast, but it's interesting that, yeah, that was an early one that was, uh, it, it's still such a mystery to so many people that they're really, really invested in it and spent their lives combing over the data and formulating their theories and they're very protective of them. Certainly we have our own, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was. I mean, going back, that it's interesting. Like the, the the path that takes you, because then we met Chris Williamson of Chasing Earhart and his project. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. That got us to uh, speak on the panel about Amelia Earhart. And as a side trip, we took a trip to the Sally House because he was like, "Hey, you know, there's other. This town's also known, actually, in here for one other famous thing. It's got one of the haunted, ha- most haunted houses in the United States. and It's like you guys want to take a tour. It's like, eh, we're really here for the conference. So I don't really know if we'll have time, but. If we do, we could open it up. Sure, we'll we'll stop by take a look, and, and that turned out to be so much more, at its own four part series. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, and
0: and that got me, you know, going in the next episode theme, uh, talking about aliens mm-hmm. and UFOs. You 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 have covered a lot of things. Uh, yeah, you know, some of my favorite episodes uh, talked about the Bet Sphere and, mm-hmm. and having someone from the family on was was super interesting, yeah. Yeah. and the Kira object, uh, even talking about that. Right. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention earlier that mm-hmm. we talked about letting people in and sort of alien related black eyed kids, yeah. that has to be the you know you talk you had the episodes on them and the David Wever, uh, Weatherly coming on, yes, That's, that has to be one of the creepiest phenomena ever. And where about and I know that Robert, what time is it there? Past midnight your time, so this is perfect. If you get a knock on the door, <laughs> I'm sorry for oh, that. Oh, he's but,
1: he'll uh, be fine. He'll be fine. He's got plus plus his dog will protect him, he's gonna you know, uh, black eyed kids, man. Yeah, it's uh, – well, see, that bridge is – it's kind of its own thing, and you're right. That's one episode where continually we'll hear that's been our scariest topic. So we did first – for our Halloween series, I I thought, like, that'll be a good one. Um, You know, it's odd in that there's not a whole lot we know about them. It's not like it's a, a studied phenomenon or even that it's time travel. And there's theories, scientific theories, about the possibilities of how it might happen. Uh, you know, even you can think like time. There are for time travel. Like, yeah, the latest study I'd heard is that uh, theoretical physicists have figured out that uh, time travel it could be possible, but you need half the energy in the universe of the, of the known universe to do it. Yeah. So, uh, but that. And and let's
0: let's touch on yeah. uh just for anybody who don't know, the, the typically a black black eyed kid's experience yeah. is a kid in period clothing, older period clothing. Uh, they usually <clears> say <throat> weird things, or they'll have like. Word things oddly. Yeah, here's Uh, oftentimes.
1: Yeah, here's the mo on that, and and from our last series with David Weatherly about David Weatherly, about just in general strange intruders into our comfortable reality. Yeah, is that it's not just kids. It it can be people have seen infants, toddlers that have totally black eyes, Uh, black eyed adults. Uh, there's a whole laundry list of weird stuff that's going on out there that will scare the crap out of anybody but with black-eyed kids specifically and this is again one of the major i guess you call them subsets of black-eyed beings uh, and we're not sure that they're actually children but they are usually as reported or from the collected reports and that's how we know about them uh, from anecdotes and we we actually did talk about brian bethel who was had one of the first classic encounters that was published because he was a uh, newspaper journalist at the time uh so he he remarked on that and wrote that down and reported on it. Uh, but basically, it's a kid anywhere from, you could say, eight years old to about 14, 15. Uh, sometimes they're by themselves. Some Usually, uh, we're not usually, but often they're in pairs. You'll have a younger one and an older one. Uh, and they will have uh, not always vintage clothing, but sometimes just very nondescript. So it'll be yeah. like a, just an old gray sweatshirt, jeans, jeans tennis shoes you've never seen before, uh, or it could be slightly out of date, like uh, maybe somewhat old-timey pants and, uh, and and maybe a shirt and a vest that you wouldn't see on a regular, you know, normal, healthy, you know, preteen these days. Uh, but generally just basically kind of nondescript, uh, sometimes with a hoodie over them. And here's the other MO is that uh, uh, they will come up to you and ask for help or come to your home. So with Brian Bethel, he was in his car. I believe he was, he was at the, there was a movie theater that he was,
0: and that for. was like the first one, right?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it's, well, if you're talking about, uh, that was one of the first majorly reported incidents, but of course, black eyed yeah. kid, uh, in, you know, encounters go back a long, probably as long as human beings, frankly, if you, if you yeah. look at it, because people had different ways of describing that, like demons, or just you know, flat out just yes, demons, yeah. or flat out uh, uh, fairies, or the fae, or uh, with shadow people they were called the the black monks because they had a black black form. We didn't yeah. call them shadow people, and they weren't wearing a fedora, but they had another head covering that was of the time that people could understand. So they had different names for different uh, for different creatures. But nowadays, in in let's say the twentieth century, um, yeah, that's usually the typical mo, in that. Uh, with him, he was at a, he was at the parking lot across from the movie theater and he was going to write a check for her the gas bill because they had a, a late night drop off. And it was about 7 p.m. These two kids came up to, first he got this really chilling feeling like, uh, that, uh, something bad was going to happen. Just a huge feeling of dread, which a lot of people get. That's one big sign Something bad's happening, something's bad about to happen, or these kids I see are not right. There's something not right about them, and and just a horrible feeling of dread. And uh, they kind of caught him by surprise, and they knocked on the window and asked him, it's like, hey, could you give us a ride home? You know, it's like our parents are waiting for us, or whatever. And he just felt like he was under a spell, looping this back to Salem's lot, and that he... They're like, Mister, you got to open the door. You have to open your car door. We need a ride. And they're kind of—they're not nice. They're very forceful. Like they're trying to get you in a trance to do what they want, which is to let them in. Uh, a lot of people believe these are demonic entities and uh, or something that's supernaturally not good, just evil. And of course, they appear as children because we want to help out kids. You, you see a kid, especially if you think uh, maybe they're down on their luck, they're homeless, abused, whatever. You want to help them out. But the what fights that is people's natural reaction and that they they see them and they know something's not right about this. And uh so Brian himself, when he's sitting in the car, He just got this horrible feeling of fright. And it's like, Sir, you know, mister, you gotta open the door for us. And he felt himself wanting to op- to unlock the door and open it for them. Like like <laughs> like Lance Kerwin. He's uh <laughs> something is telling me to like open the window. And uh He feels himself about to do it and then he kind of snaps out of it and he's like, no, it's like, well, if you need me to call, you know, call you a cab or whatever, or uh, if you have any money, it's like, and they're like, no, we, we need, we need to get into your car. And I'm not remembering all the the specific details, but basically they, they
0: yeah, and I think it was far past <clears> that, like there was no movies. They apparently yeah. just got dropped off, but there was no movies
1: playing. It was like really late. Yeah, there was no reason and for so like... young, you know, for young kids that age to be there. So, uh, and that's another thing that people see is that you know people show up, kids show up at their door. It'll be like three in the morning. It's like how how are you out? Certainly kids can sneak out, but they're like uh, we need to come in and use your phone. That's another one. Uh, one weird. Yes. Uh, anecdote is that they, they came to the door and said, we need to use your telegraph. Now, yes, here's, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, and one. here's what, uh, what perhaps points to that, is that they have no idea really of time or what's proper or what we're doing. They just know, like, we're kind of in the area. It's, it's a little like how uh, men in black are described in that, you know, they're wearing clothes from the 50s. They don't really understand. Yeah. Uh, one report of a man a man in black was at a restaurant and, He's kind of sweating. He looks like there's a wire coming down out of his hat, and he doesn't know how to yeah. cut his steak. And the waitress like, you want, me, you want me to cut that for you? <laughs> like, And they don't really get it. Uh, and that's the same thing with the kids. The other in, uh, incidents that we did cover with David Weatherly is this happened in Texas. They we were talking about dogs. This guy had a big, tough uh, pit bull that uh, came t- you know, kids ring the doorbell. This thing comes tearing around the, uh, the living room. And before he's even opened the door, it just... It just stops in its tracks, goes and hides under the bed and wouldn't come out for like three days. This this thing was, it knew that these kids weren't right. But I believe how he encountered them, though, was that he was getting his groceries out of the truck. And these kids just kind of popped up on his on his yard. And he's like, I didn't see them coming down the street. I didn't, you know, when I was driving up, I saw nothing of them. They just kind of appeared. And he's got his groceries out and he's kind of wondering what they want. He's kind of heading to the door and they said, mister, is it food time? If it's food time, you need to let us in. And it's like, who says food time? <laughs> you know, like, every kid would say, is it dinner? You know, hey, we're really hungry. Can we have a steak? And I think he offered them like, well, look, you want some food? You, you know, if your kids are hungry, I'll just give you some something out of the bag. Like, no, you need to let us in. And he knew that was a mistake. Now, the anecdotes from people that have let them in... Was that Then it's very hard to get them to leave. They don't want to leave. It's like, can we have a glass of water? Could we use your phone? It's just all these excuses. Once people did get them out, or they, they claim they did, then it's a string of bad luck. Bad health problems, yeah. bad luck, accidents. Was that the one woman who thought she was pregnant? Oh, I'm
0: not sure about and that. And she still... Yeah, there's a woman, I think y'all talked about it, a woman who suffered, or maybe I might have heard it on uh, Harold, mm-hmm. Jim Harold's crampfire. She had suffered pregnancy symptoms, and mm. it they persisted long. At, like she still had pregnancy symptoms like years, and she wasn't pregnant. Right, and like she would have the symptoms like years after. That's
1: freaky. That is that yeah. is weird. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, if you want to know more about it, I suggest reading David Weatherly's books. And he has one on black eyed kids. I think it's still in print. It's very popular. It it uh, it did sell out. And then the other one, that's kind of a follow up, which is all kinds of strange creatures that seem to be bothering people is called uh you know strange intruders so strange intruders has more of those stories but it's even wilder and weirder because there are reports of black-eyed adults and and reports he's collected from people and like i said one time somebody saw a toddler in a stroller at the grocery store and it had totally black eyes and you got to wonder what's going on out there what what's uh you know what's happening and i'm i'm waiting for stephen king to do a black eyed uh <laughs> creature oh, yeah. but That'd but again ready. it's just one incident it's it's not like they have a history it's not like vampires there's a whole legendary uh you know years generations of lore about them they just seem to pop up the one of the oldest uh, incidents was uh, either from the 50s or just around the turn of the century and it was a kid reporting some uh seeing some weird kid sitting on a fence as he's walking home from school. Uh, and But what he reported was totally black eyes, this thing wanting to follow him home. It's like, you got to let me home. Uh, you know, I need to get to your home. And just knowing that this thing was wrong and he reported it to his folks and they didn't have any word for it or idea. But the description of the anecdote, it's a black-eyed kid. So yeah, it's uh, there's all uh, if from all the topics we have on our list we didn't get to. The sure you have your werewolf, your your uh, your killer robots, <laughs> your your boogeymen, your ghosts, but there's also a whole host of creatures that people have reported that are just beyond imagination. I would think that Stephen King would have trouble coming up with these things. That uh, that things that Kohl's Shack would only possibly hint at, but he was getting there. And that, uh, that's the one thing I saw, uh, com- you know, coming back to Kohl's Shack is that there's, there's an idea that there are all manner of weird creatures out there that the show and the series tried to tackle and that, yes, you've got uh, your zombies, uh, your werewolf, uh, some type of, um, you could say, uh, what was the, well, was it kind of an energy monster? And then there's a Spanish moss monster. Uh, so you had, which that that thing reminded me. One of those two reminded me of the the garbage tulpa from X Files, <laughs> and maybe that inspired. Yes, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, and I know Chris. Uh, the remake uh, was done. I'm not sure if it was Frank Chris Chris Carter was involved or Frank Spotnitz, one of the producers who worked closely with him. Who tried to do the reboot of Cole Shack? Remember that? Yeah, that, that was SpotNets. Okay, so yeah, that's where they think that uh, some of these ideas uh, may have come from in their crossover with X Files. Uh, but what, what's your opinion of the, uh, the 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 newer reboot?
2: Yeah, I mean, most I I watched I watched it. And yeah. I mean, yeah. most people will on the fan sites, you know, in the Kolshek fan sites, they'll say they just hated it. Yeah. And why did they do what they did? And and, and Mark DeWidziak helped illuminate, you know, some of the, the problems with what that show had. Mm-hmm. And Rich Haddam did the same thing, uh, a little differently. But I mean, essentially, when it got down to it, they were hamstringed by um the, the network yeah. um telling them you can't use monsters. I mean, seriously? <laughs> it's a show about Kolch, you can't use monsters. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and, and then Rich had said how, you know, it, the old Shack was it's just, you know, the story dropped when the story dropped, right. and you just picked up again. It's mm-hmm. like it was a whole new episode, and there was very little carryover. One episode at all had any carryover. That was the vampire from the ah. original, because one of the first, the the, the the female vampire who comes out of the ground, it's linked to Scorzeny. Um, but even, but very weakly. I mean, so mm-hmm. much so Bradley missed it. I missed it the first couple of times I saw it and it wasn't until just later, you know, you think, Oh, so he's saying they're related, but I uh, honestly on its own, it didn't, it, I thought it was okay. Yeah. Look, it wasn't, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't Kolchak. No, I mean, no, that's, no. that was the thing. They, they, they did a wonderful little tribute to him by putting, inserting him in footage Um, you know, in some of the scenes and having him just sitting there while the other coal shack person's walking around. And I just, you know, it was okay. Yeah. It was just okay. But some people said the episodes that got cut, um, at the very end, the last four were some of the best. And the very last episode was very good. So I've actually not seen the last four. So I'm looking forward to checking those out someday. I mean, I just love Shack anyway. Yeah. The character, you know, I think if they would have called it son of Shack you know, or or just said, you know, it, alternate reality Shack or something like no,
1: that. No, I, I I yeah, I hear you. And it's that would have worked. Yeah, it, there's a magic that was there, especially with Darren McGavin and and uh I had read a little blurb where uh it was kind of sorry. I was a little sad to hear if it if true that he was a little embarrassed by playing having to play the character like it seemed a little out there and wacky and and uh that possibly led also to you know his not wanting to do it anymore may have had some influence on it ending uh we also know that there's a bunch of other elements especially in Hollywood and TV and and movies that influence that as well that we never know about but uh, yeah, when you look at the stuff, it's entertaining and, and uh, you know, it, it was a, uh, I don't know if I would say lightning in a bottle, but it, it at the time it, it all clicked for me. I certainly loved that as a child and I loved that aspect about it because there was not much else out there like it, you know, and, and it was unique for its time. Uh, but also, uh, it's like what Rich had him said about, uh, because I was kind of teasing him, it's like, God, you, gotta, you should reboot uh, the Rockford Files. I would love that that setup, and it's like, look, we've all seen yeah. detective shows, we've all seen kind of monster hunting shows now, and uh, in that vein, and he and Rich was like, well, so much of that show was really about the charm of uh, James Garner, and you know, if you can't find somebody like that, just don't even try, because that was one part of it. It's like, yeah, he he's he's solving, you know, he's a private eye, he's solving those kinds of things. Uh, that's not the stretch. It's really the chemistry of how he behaves with his dad Rocky, and uh, um, I can't the, the the guy who's the snitch that he's uh, uh, he's always talking
2: to. Gosh, it's been so long for me. I can't remember. I know,
1: it's, and it's that's not this show, but like yeah. So, so if you if you look at it, it it's with Kolchak. I mean, really, it's about his charm. If you look at everybody else that's in the office, you know the the guy that uh, I'm trying to think. You know, basically he's he's got. Tony Vincenzo, his boss, uh, but he's not really on his side. He's always kind of chasing him around. He's not getting uh you know, you know, he's uh he's kind of having to thwart his usual job to go after the stories that he wants to or that he thinks is important and, and uh you know, so when you you look at everybody else and it's like he's he's on his own. That's what's interesting, is that um is it uh, Ru- Ruth uh, Mcdevitt. So Emily, mm-hmm. Miss Emily or whatever. Yeah. She I love that they're kind of friends. In the she does the Miss Emily column, but she kind of believes him in a way or or at least lets him do his stuff and he respects her. Uh the other guy Jack Greenwich, is kind of the you know the the gadfly in the ointment uh there uh as uh, Ron Updike um and he's uh you know, he does help out because he's, he's smart, he's knowledgeable, but really he's just there as a foil for, for Shack So, you know, that's what I, again, that's what I loved about it is that he's, uh, he's solitary, you know, he's kind of on his own, just fighting this fight and, and in a lot of ways he's pretty fearless. His love of, of getting the story outweighs, uh, a lot of fear and just, I mean, you know, he's the nosy, uh, news reporter, investigative reporter, but, uh, a lot of times, after the first few incidents with some some of the scariest monsters out there, like you think people would hang it up, but no, he keeps on going. So I, I love that spirit about him, and uh, in that he's, he, of course, he's not. This is what's interesting about the, the differences of today is that we've come a long ways. We know a lot more about the paranormal. At least we think we do, or have different ideas and at least uh, speculations and hypotheses. Uh, about what's going on. If you look at the old Twilight Zones, and occasionally there'd be an explanation of something paranormal, like doppelgangers or this and that, but they didn't have a whole lot of, you know, certainly not people have been thinking about it and researching it and investigating it as much as they have now. So the people have been collecting stories like Charles Hoyfort, collecting the stories, making some commentary, but you don't have paranormal investigators like you do now collecting the patterns and, uh, you know, it would seem to be the uh, predilections of these types of phenomena so now that you have more we have more understanding of that and so uh like i said you didn't see much of that in twilight zone but with kolshak yeah he's uh not that far ahead but he's trying to put the pieces together like of course you always got to consult the big stack of ancient library books and spells and mm-hmm. witches and demons and he'll go buy something and kind of and and do his homework but as far as like knowing uh like a bigger picture uh he's not fox molder in that sense and if you look at fox molder the way he operated like yes this guy's got a much broader knowledge of the supernatural and paranormal uh ufos and different stuff and so he's better armed with knowledge but but yeah he's from a different era so in the 70s you have kolschak just starting to scratch the surface, like. What's going on? Could it be this Native American spirit, or uh, a New Orleans zombie, a voodoo—you know—a hoodoo or voodoo zombie? Could it be these other things? And having a little bit of knowledge, but really just bumbling around until he until he, you know, gets as much of a story as he can, and uh, that's what we're left with.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think it's one of the reasons I enjoyed Buffy the Vampire Slayer so much. Um, was they going into the librarian, um, you know, room and doing the research. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then when I read about the writers of that show, I mean, they had said how they would pull from some things that they knew of. But for the most part, they just thought, what is going to sound like a really cool, scary, you know, this, that, or the other. Right. We throw some Latin at Now, like J.K. Rowling, boom. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the way that she used all of her spells by right. just uh, con- con- contorting some, some Latin. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I really enjoy those shows. And I think when, um, if you haven't, uh, seen the episode or heard the episode, you wouldn't see it, but heard the episode we did with James Rice, um, mm. which is the son of Jeff Rice. Mm-hmm. Oh, Who yeah, created yeah. the Coleshack character. Um, you know, James really felt like from what he knew of his dad that Kolshak was the character his dad always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And it, he wanted that spirit, he wanted that fight, um, in him, and and, and in that sense he feels like Kolchak is a character and why it resonates with so many people. He's a character that all of us would like to be. Yeah. We'd all you know, to a certain extent, we'd all like to be heroic in the sense of fighting for truth. Yeah. And especially in the in the guise of um, whatever you want to call it, confusion. Let's just call it that. We're trying to find some truth through that. So it's it's just um, not to get political, but it's just it's so important these days. Yeah. To be able to differentiate, you know, what you hear, what you see, yeah. what you believe, and, and and do enough investigation along the way to try to have some sort of rational perspective. Yeah. You know, yeah. about about what's going on. And I think in in a very strange way, Kolshak does that. And I think you're gonna be historically the last episode where I'm gonna say <laughs> I'm putting together this scholarship for jeff for Jeff Rice, oh cool because I'm gonna finally do it, yeah, I'm gonna just stop saying I'm putting it together, okay. I'm gonna go and break down and and get the thing together, but that's what we've we've spoken about, and we talked to James and other people, and we want to actually a mem- you know commemorate Jeff Rice and his contribution to this because he didn't really get all of the the fame and fortune that Darren McGAvin got only sure. for a season, right and very few people remember him. So we're going to try to do something where there's some sort of little memorial scholarship and maybe a writing contest and that will um you know give some some recognition to him and get his name out there and and strangely enough James recommended going to the University of Nevada Las Vegas mm. and asking them if they would be interested in partnering with us, and they actually are wow. interested in, in doing something with that. So, But you, I'm going to make you historically the last interview <laughs> where I say we have to do something about this, and maybe I'll actually do something. All right, all right, we'll hold you there to it. There you we'll, go, yeah, we'll, your credit. We'll
1: all hold you to it. Uh, and Thank you. It, yeah, Thank you. and we'll, we'll, of course, come <laughs> back and, and blast you on social media <laughs> if it doesn't happen.
0: Oh, what a fun interview. Sorry, my wife scared me. They're, she didn't hear me talking for a while. <laughs> well, and and we've been talking about black eyed kids. I hear the door Ooh. open. I'll jerk to the side. I, <laughs> man, I, my heart's still so racing from just
1: that.
0: Just don't um, let them in. That's that's the point. Just don't let them yep. in. Yeah. Hey, Forrest. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find astonishing legends wherever you find podcasts. They have a Patreon. Early uh, early ad free episodes. A lot of great bonus content. There was a, a an exclusive. I think y'all had a Rich Adam interview mm-hmm. up uh, recently. Put up of maybe in the past month. Uh, definitely go check that out. Uh, do you want to plug anything else? Anything on your socials or anything Just else to, coming up? They're going to be at Podcast Moving. Yeah, we'll Movement,
1: be uh, uh, right. We'll be at Podcast Movement in Nashville uh, next week here, uh, or actually the, the the first week of August. And uh, we we haven't been out for a long time, so it'll be fun to see. Uh, you know, some of the folks in podcasting, and also we're we're having a meetup at the end of that uh, week. And uh, you can just go find us on astonishinglegends.com. So we have our own website, and if you want to do your own deep dive rabbit hole uh, research, like Cole Shack, then you can uh, you can see all the links and articles we use, some photos, uh, usually a map, and basically a, a basic uh, every piece of uh, research that we came across will be on a web page for that specific episode. So, yeah, go check that out, and uh, thank you so much for having me on, you guys, and uh, let me just blab and blab and go on and on and on as I usually do, uh, because you are several hours later than me. So, <laughs> thank you so much for letting me go, but I, I just really enjoyed my time here, and uh, I've been looking forward to, to speaking with uh, Bradley and Robert here, and uh, for, for a long time now, and glad we finally got that scheduled and got it together and, and we've all chatted, and uh, if you want to have Scott back on with with me, certainly he'll curb my uh, you know bl- blathering and going <laughs> on uh, with his own. Uh, feel free to ask us. We'll be, we'll be back on when we have some time, and it'd be it'd be great to uh, chat with both of you guys again. Yeah, and the
0: of course the Astonishing Research Corps does an amazing yeah, job. Yeah. No test rifles is, is a part of it. Amazing, amazing yep. work over there at uh, Astonishing Legends. You can find them everywhere they said. And I want so what I want I, one of the episodes y'all did that I love is the Christmas episode, mm. the Christmas roundtable we mm-hmm. all sort of did. Yes. I thought about maybe having a coal shack Halloween roundtable. Oh. Maybe having you guys back, bringing Rodney Barnes. We need Mark DeWoodziak in there. Yeah. Have Richard Haddam. We have like a, a coal shack Halloween. I love it. I, sort of. I love
1: the idea. Plus Rich has the outfit. He's got the seersucker. He's got the yes, hat. He'd, he'd be our coal Yeah. He's, uh, he, he, he gets it together. He always uh, has a really interesting, unique, uh, outfit for Halloween. I, uh, hopefully he still kept the seersucker.
0: I'm sure it's, it's in the closet <laughs> there, but we will try to work that out. And around that time also, the coal shack blu-rays are coming out that, uh, that are, ah, uh, the, you know, yeah. the new series remasters, I know, uh, new commentary and stuff. So we'll, we'll probably talk about that around that time, too. And I think it'd be fun to have everybody on just to hash that
1: stuff out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just let us know. We'll be there. Yeah, yeah. of course. I just, uh,
2: just wanted to say thanks. And uh, eventually I would like to hear Croatoan.
1: <laughs> Croatoan. Yes. Uh, Karatan. <laughs> the many different uh, pronunciations we have uh Louisville, 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 Louisville. You,
2: you yeah. said it. You said it better than I say it, and that's <laughs> and that's only because I grew up across the river. Ah, so I was right. born here. I actually worked in the hospital where I was born for a number of years. Wow. Um, but my 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 mother was born here. Grandparents, but my father is from Charleston, West Virginia. And he refused to ever say Louisville. He couldn't do it. So I sound like him, I speak like him, yeah. and so I grew up saying Louisville. Which is which people would look at you and say, You're not from here, are you? I'd say, Well, I kinda' of not. I'm just across right. a river. So yeah. But I, I will I will occasionally go half and half and I'll say Louisville. Okay. I get into that sometimes. But no, I, I noticed it immediately when you said it. Yeah. I was like, man, I sound like a poser in my own city because you said it
1: right. <laughs> yeah, but we, we screw up so many other pronunciations that we, we try to and we just can't get there. So, uh, And that is probably our biggest thing that garners emails is that, uh, hey, you guys said this wrong. Uh, but hey, we do our best as we all do and, uh, you know... Uh, I'm just glad occasionally we nail it.
2: Yeah, and you're and you're honest about it. Not, not to yeah, go too sure. much further, but you're honest about it, so I appreciate that. Oh of course, thank you. And uh, no, yeah, I mean it's 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 difficult to do it. Um you're you're not exactly there, you know, hundreds of years ago to understand right. what they said. So right. do the best you can. Yeah. You Thanks know. again, Bradley, back to you.
0: Yeah, and uh for all things Kolshek, uh, We've already said all our stuff.
2: <laughs> just, y'all, all y'all things Shack, at. just yeah. go to sleep. What? Wait. <laughs> For
0: all things Kohl's Shack, you can find us right here, Inside the Loop.
1: Nice.